This is episode 16 of Alohomora for November 18th, 2012. Hey everybody, I'm Noah Freed. I'm Kat Miller. I'm Rosie Morris, and this is our special guest for the week, Terence from Hogwarts Radio. Hi guys, it's great to be here. Yeah, thanks for coming. We're happy to have you. Thanks for the invite. What? I definitely appreciate it. Of, of course. What kind of uh, what kind of Harry Potter initiatives have you been taking part in recently? Um, recently, just uh, Hogwarts Radio, we started up our, our podcast again. We kind of took a year off, and we needed it because we went for about uh, three years just weekly, nonstop, and it was a lot of fun. So we just we figured we needed a break, and uh, now we're back and podcasting. It's a lot of fun. That's great. What what kind of things do you guys do on the show? Um, well, now we're going more from a, um, a movie-centric podcast over to book-centric. Um, we're discussing different things, much as you guys do here on Alohomora. Uh, we're discussing different themes and, and uh, subplots in the books and just kind of picking apart um, different events that are happening and uh, having a lot of fun with that. That sounds awesome. Well, uh, for all the listeners out there, we'll be sure to put a link to your podcast in our show notes, and uh, you know maybe we can have a little bit of a cross cross uh, cross advertising. Some oh, somehow. definitely, yeah. We would like to take a quick moment to thank our sponsors, Audible, exclusively for fans of Alohomora. They are offering a free audio download. They have over one hundred thousand titles to choose from, so head over to audiblepodcast.com/open to get yours now. Great, so we'll crack on with our discussion from uh, last week's podcast where we were discussing chapters 11 and 12, and we've been looking through our site and getting your comments as normal. Um, so Can I just say that they were, they were some really exceptional comments uh, for the last episode? I really loved getting in, and I actually uh, had a bit of a discussion on the, uh, on the thread for the last episode, and it was, it was really great, great fun. So thanks for all the great comments you guys are submitting us every week. Definitely. We love reading them, and we love getting involved with you guys. Um, so our, our first comment is from our, our main site, our archives, and it's from Tootsie Noodles 453, um, and it's about Serpent Sortia. And it says, I was listening to your podcast, and in the Dueling Club chapter, Draco uses the spell Serpent Sortia. I was astounded that you guys, or that you never touched on the fact that Draco had just created an animal out of thin air. How do you guys <laughs> think he did this? Is it similar to the desk pig? Oh. <laughs> Noah, Go. Oh man, I wish I, I wish I had like zeroed in on that when we got it, but I didn't. I don't know why. But my immediate thought is, did he create the snake or did he summon the snake? I guess we have to look at the entomology of serpent sortia or sortia. But um, another question is, why did the snake immediately go for Justin Finch Fletchley at all? Um, how did it know to go after Muggleborns if Harry wasn't telling it to do so? Um, that's a whole bunch of questions regarding the, regarding that snake, but no, I don't know how it was created. <laughs> hmm, maybe because it was created by a Slytherin, it just knows to go after Muggleborns. I don't know. Yeah, but I don't think Draco was controlling it. I mean, do you think presumably that was the smell spell that uh, Snape had whispered in his ear to do, or did he just uh, did he go against Snape and do something that Snape hadn't uh, authorized? No, I think judging by Snape's smirk at that part that yes he definitely told draco to do that spell maybe because yeah. of the fact that it was com it was made out of complete magic uh it knew 
to go and attack a Muggleborn or to, you know, try to create that kind of animosity between them. Yeah, it just it just seems weird that it instantly knew. I was thinking that maybe maybe when the snake came into the air, maybe it heard the basilisk or, or sensed the basilisk's motivations, or maybe you know maybe Tom Riddle from his diary was doing some whisperings, and there was just so much of this voice around the school that it instantly knew what to do. But it, I'm, it's still not really clear to me because Harry Harry was trying to call it back, so it, it didn't seem like anyone was telling it to go after Justin. It just kind of did. It could have even been a coincidence. Right. Was just, just a coincidence. Would, I think it just if it was summoned or if it was created, whatever. As soon as it kind of hit the ground, it went towards the first thing that it saw, which was probably Justin. Right. Harry was, was just. He... It's kind of just because it's a snake and because of the everything going on at the Hog- at Hogwarts at the time. It was just a unfortunate coincidence. Justin wasn't speaking or anything, was he? He was just standing there, right? Yeah, just standing there like the rest of them. Yeah. What are you playing at? Well, that's after the like, fact, but yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's, all the coincidences uh, in this book, Steve Vanderark's having a field day. Yeah, yeah probably. <laughs> but yeah, I don't know if that Snape... Uh, sorry, not the Snape. Oops, the Snape. <laughs> that snake. Who created that snake? Where did it come from? Is it a real snake? Would you eat that snake? Ew. I don't know. Get in the comments later and we'll uh, we'll answer this question next week. I would not eat that snake. <laughs> I wouldn't either. Gross. <laughs> anyway, we also have a comment also about the the dueling club from Hufflepuff Skin on the forums, um, and it says the dueling club scene was particularly interesting to me because I think it also harkens to another event in the future book. This is the first real dueling confrontation of Harry and Draco. Harry uses the Rictum Sempra spell to make Draco laugh uncontrollably. In book six, Harry uses the Half-Blood Prince spell, Sempra, to make Draco bleed uncontrollably. Perhaps I'm stretching, but I think the parallels are interesting. And add the fact that Snape is influential in both cases, as a supervisor or ringleader of the dueling club Chaos and the creator of the Sempra spell. That's an interesting connection I hadn't actually thought of before. They're both Sempras. Yeah, Sempra. Both... Doesn't that mean uh, always? or Does it? I don't know. I feel like it means always or all the time, and that's why Richta Sempra is um, laugh uncontrollably. Well, actually, and... that's the tickling spell, but right. But then, in any case, uh, oh, so she was wrong. But uh, but Sempra just means this always <laughs> or continuous, and that that's that's cool. I mean, hasn't been it been argued that like Chamber of Secrets and Half Blood Prince are parallels? Very close, yeah, yeah. It's a, the circular book theory, which um, I'm going to speak about in the chapter in my chapter later on. We'll we'll see a lot of that. Say. Did uh, did John Granger invent that, or did that previously? No, that's a that's no. a theory that has been around since you know the Odyssey. <laughs> it's it's oh. a really common um, writing um, kind of trope. That's pretty old. Yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I was just looking at the uh, the the word meaning. Um, you guys were just talking about it, and I went ahead and looked on on dictionary dot com for sectum. You know, because uh, rictus and sempra. I'm sorry, rictus and sectum. I wanted to, you know, establish the differences in that. And uh, sectum, it's really interesting. Sectum, uh, the nominative um, singular of sectus, which means cut off or divided. So it's always cut off, always divided, always, you Hmm. know, bleeding, something like that. Whoa. So that's that's pretty that's pretty interesting. Some of the etymology of the spells and 
different things Joe uses in the series is is really um, really awesome. She's so darn yeah. smart, that woman. Definitely. <laughs> and remember, remember, Snape can uh, he invented that spell, so he probably just took Sempra, um, and y- you know, you put another root word before it, and you just kind of see what happens. I guess that's what happens when you invent spells. You just kind of give your wand a twirl and. Uh, Wow, yeah, Th- that seems kind of dangerous, you know. For <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, just creating words out of thin air <laughs> and and seeing what they do. It, it's crazy though, because it seems like if you have the right spell, if you have the right spell, it's going to do something. It's going to like have some established effect. I don't know. It has to yeah. be more than that. It has to have more than that because you have to have the right wand movement and the intention. So I think you have to have some sort of ideas what what it's going to do. But they are dangerous because, no, I, mean, I mean, we we see Hermione say that untested spells are, you know, they shouldn't be used and that right. the Ministry has some kind of testing system. So for for Snape to to create something like this is a dangerous thing to do, but, you know, it's a spell to make someone cut and bleed. So I wonder it, if they have any kind of a tracking system on that. Hmm. Doubtful. Wiz- Wizards don't care. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Wizarding World is just so huge, I don't know how they can keep track of all of this. Mm-hmm. No. How would you create a, a tracker to create, to like track something that hasn't been created yet? Well, it's just like, I mean, I would say something along the lines of the trace. Maybe using that kind of magic to to see if they could. But then again, I mean, th- they should be able to track, if, if we're talking about being able to track spells, I mean, there's some spells out there that obviously shouldn't even be used. Um, you know, the Cruciatus Curse... And things like right. that. So there's really no way to track those. But how would you track them? I mean, you know, like I said, maybe some kind of of hidden magic with the having to do something with the trace or something like that. I mean, I think that's that's true because you bring up the trace, didn't they? Didn't the Ministry sense the hover charm that Dobby did because of Harry's trace? Mm-hmm. And and so and, the trace and also. Right, right. And they also did pretty much the same thing in Order of the Phoenix whenever Harry used Expecto Patronum against the Dementors in, in, in Little Whinging. Right. So maybe maybe it doesn't work inside Hogwarts because the the castle's just so magical itself and there's so much going on at the same time, but maybe in Muggle communities it's uh, the trace is heightened. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I doubt, there, yeah, I doubt there's a trace at Hogwarts. There's too many spells being said probably at any given time of the day. Right. Oh, yeah. And it's not illegal. They're allowed to use spells at Hogwarts. Right. <laughs> right. So maybe it only interacts in places that aren't magical already. Yeah. Hmm. Nice. Our next comment is from the Green Flame Torch, and it's t- talking about um, our first mention of one of the most obscure Hogwarts professors, uh, Professor Sinistra of the Astronomy Department. Um, the user, the comment is probably a bit too long to read, but the user goes on to talk about astronomy and its importance in the in the Potter books. Um, so if you head over to our forums, you can look in the discuss the podcast thread, and you can uh, share your thoughts on this comment. Yeah, I I read that, and I was the one that put that in there. And that comment is literally like four pages long, but it's so interesting because it goes on to talk about how important astronomy is in the Potter series and how it relates to Muggles and stuff. It's just. It's unbelievable. Really good comment, the Green Flame Torch. So sorry that it was too long for us to read, but everyone should go to the forums and check it out. That's, that's what awesome. they're there for, and that's what our archives yeah. are there for as well. So make sure you are reading everything that's out there. It's not just a the podcast. Awesome, the awesome moment whenever your comment becomes too long to read on the show, but it's a, it's more like an editorial. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. 
yeah, make it into an essay. We can publish it on MuggleNet. Definitely. Yeah, exactly. But uh, does does this Professor Sinistra um, like pop up in any other moments of the book? Do we know, or is this the only mention? Oh my god! No, so... she uh, she's mentioned a few times, but she's never kind of a character that talks or anything. I don't think. Right. We never like officially meet her. We just hear right. of her. Yeah. Hmm. And she doesn't even administer the exams, right? Even during the owls, because it's a no, it's an owl person doing it. So yeah. Hmm. Well. Great comment. Sorry we couldn't read it. Yeah. <laughs> Ooh, cool fact here. Um, just real quick, while we're on the lines of Professor Sinistra, um, first name is Aurora. Yeah. Ties into the whole astronomy thing. That's really awesome. There's a lot of appropriate names with teachers. I quite like them. Right, exactly. <laughs> how how lucky for them that they all ended up teaching what they I know, their subject. No, I know. It's strange, isn't it? <laughs> how serendipitous. But then, you know, oh, it happens in real life, too. My my real name is Rosalind, which is from Shakespeare, and I'm studying Shakespeare, so it works. Huh. <laughs> there you go. Okay, so our next comment is from KaiKid942 from our forums, um, and it's about Harry's beatings that we've talked about a couple of times before. Um, and it says, it's metaphorical language, pure and simple. How many times have you heard people say or said yourself, something tastes like dung? Um, but you could probably have used a more colourful word for it um, or that you've just gotten hit, hit over the head with a 2 by 4 or some other colourful, colourful exaggeration I really think you're reading what you want to see into the text when there is really nothing there that would support this particular claim I'm not saying that Harry was never struck um, I know I got my share, fair share of spankings as a kid um, but to take this one statement and to say that it's proof even additional proof that Harry was physically abused is going too far <laughs> um, <laughs> this is something that I've always kind of said. I never personally thought that Harry was physically abused in that way. Um, I can see how it could be read that way, and there was something in the in the chapters last last episode that we were saying um, could have been seen as proof. Um, but I do agree that you know reading all of these little little statements could be seen as going too far. However, there are people who do say these statements as kind of clues to something bigger that you know they shouldn't be ignored um so if you're ever in a kind of a child protection situation you should you know you should try and pick up on things like this um but yes it's it's possible that we were going slightly too far there yeah i mean i, I think i was one of the people who was most forwarding this uh, this concept that the the constant mentions of his being hit with the pan or is, is seeing uh, Oliver Wood as first a, a piece of wood that McGonagall was, was going to beat him with after the uh, the Quidditch fiasco with Draco. But um, just thinking it over, I talked to the, some people on the forums about it, uh, including uh, Kai Kidd and Chris. Um, I think it's more interesting, besides deciding whether or not Harry was beaten, I mean, we really can't, we can't get to that. We can't know that unless Joe herself said it, it happened or it didn't happen. Um, I mean, there's substantial evidence that he was, you know, somewhat abused but i think the more interesting thing is here is to notice the pattern and that's really what i was doing and, and kind of what i'm taught in school and with the english majors to note patterns and especially in harry's language it just seems like over and over again he's talking about how you know some some pain in at hogwarts is similar to some pain at home like a frying pan hitting you in the head or or something like that so i found that those images kind of relating to each other seem to reflect some deeper theme of the book relating to, you know, childhood abuse and escaping into your imagination to cope with it. Um, 
And the way that that manifests in the series is every time there is some sort of physical action or he's being seemingly abused, it's because of something magical or he's somehow saved by something magical. Um, so that seems, you know, if we kind of look at that thematically, like what's really going on here, it seems like there's some sort of psychological trauma. And then that character, that boy, child, you know, retreats into this magical world, which we could say is imagination. Um, so, that, so that's one theory. So ultimately, I don't really know like why this pattern is here, but you know, my my schooling just teaches me to look for patterns in the books, and once you can really do that, you can really see how a book works. Um, kind of look at at what level is the book trying to, you know, at what level is Joe creating a structure for for the reader to kind of understand the book in new ways? And the way to do that as a writer is to create these patterns, and this is just a pattern that I've observed. So whether or not Harry was beaten, I don't know, but I was just. Uh, I think it's an interesting pattern that he keeps making these connections. Well, I wasn't on the last episode, but um, I actually completely agree with you. I definitely think that he was um, abused, whether or not you're sticking to what you said last episode. Well, I don't know is what I'm saying, but yeah. Right. Well, I, I do believe because I feel like if he wasn't, he wouldn't be using the metaphors he's using. Like, I've ne- I, I mean, usually when I describe something, I, I kind of, you know, like if I have a headache, I say, oh, just... I have a splitting hand. I've never said that I feel like I got hit by a two by four. So I just, <laughs> I, I feel like what Harry is relating the pain to must be something that he's experienced in his life. Because I don't know. Not really. He's it, an imaginative it, kid. But, you know, if he know. can imagine that it would feel the same as being hit over the head with a frying pan if it hurts that much. I mean, perhaps. I don't know. I just, I, I guess I'm pulling from my experiences of that. I tend to relate things to things that I'm that I already know. Like I wouldn't make something up out of thin air. Maybe I don't have an imagination. I don't know. But I feel so. like I feel like everything we say, all the connections we make, uh, speak to our unconscious minds and the way the way we work. So we could we could we could say that Joe is potentially being a super genius here and and really meticulous by giving each character phrases and uh, and just connections, especially Harry, that somehow tell us something about them as characters or as people. So we could look at her putting all these different suggestions of beatings in his language there as a, a purposeful way to show the reader that he was abused or he abused or he has this deep abuse that he doesn't really think about too much consciously, but is there on some unconscious level. Um, and whether she planned it or not, it seems to just be there by virt- by nature of the pattern. So maybe it was just it's it's her own unconscious coming through that she's just writing and it just seems right for this character. It's definitely an interesting idea, uh, an interesting theory. So maybe someone should, you know, look for all of these different references and maybe create an essay about it and, you know, try and argue a point one way or the other. It's not something we can decide on in our podcast. So down to you guys. (laughs) Um, So moving on to something else that we said in in the podcast last week. Um, Rebecca the Ravenclaw says that uh, she has just done some research on something I said um, in the last episode. Um, I was wondering whether the swelling solution was a real potion uh, because it seems like such an odd and kind of pointless thing to want to make Um, and Rebecca says that uh, she agreed with me so she looked into it and says "Um, I've actually discovered a recent 2010 study that was done where swelling seems to have been beneficial for some injuries, mainly muscle-related, we don't want to decrease swelling because it seems that the swelling brought on naturally may help the injury heal more effectively over the long run um, than if you reduce the swelling immediately. Who knows if this is actually why Joe made this up, especially since the study only came out two years ago. 
Personally, I think it was just for the humour factor of seeing Malfoy walking around with the nose like a melon, because hey-ho, who wouldn't want to see that? <laughs> yeah. I feel like I knew that. I feel like if you sometimes doctors will purposely swell stuff to get the, uh, you know, to treat you, get a poison out. Really? I don't. Yeah, I, I, I don't. Is that not true? No, I, I mean, I'm not. I'm not denying its credibility or anything like that. But I just, I kind of, because I've worked in the medical field before, and um, you know, I've seen some pretty, pretty crazy stuff. But um, I, I just don't know. I feel like inflaming an area of your body, especially an injury, really wouldn't be beneficial to it. I mean, that seems true. We have to. We have to do some further research. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's well, a doctor out there said us. Well, yeah. Well, if any if any other fans out there are hearing this and you're a doctor and you you swell patients on occasion, you have fun for science, you know. Yeah. Let us know. Or you especially, hit them over the head with a two by four, you know, make them swell up. Right, especially if you're a wizard <laughs> or a witch. Right. right in. That would help. Yeah. Also, the swellings potion. Since we made the podcast last, uh, like two weeks ago. Um, is now actually up on Pottermore, so I hope you've all had fun, you know, making your swelling solutions to go and blow up Malfoy with. <laughs> <laughs> Those potions take a long time. They do. I just don't so have long. the. Uh, I let them sit there, and then I come <coughs> back, and and for a while, um, you know, early on in Pottermore, when it was having some bugs, uh, you couldn't brew potions because it kept. Uh, it, mine at least kept exploding. There was nothing I could do, and it was really sad because at first I thought it was me. I just was a bad potion maker, but then I realized no. There's something. There's something wrong here. I believe it's better now, though. I, yes. I gave up on potions in Pottermore a long time ago. I mean, I'm I'm kind of like, <laughs> I'm kind of like Seamus. You know, everything that I made just really didn't go together. <laughs> but that was the kind face. of slightly annoying thing about the swelling solution was that you had to make it to progress. Yeah. The the polyjuice potion is slightly different. Thankfully, you can you can skip it because that would take a long time. But yeah. yeah. Voila. I I never had a problem with potions. Maybe it's just my Ravenclaw nature. I don't know, but. It came easily to me. Let's Even polyjuice. Let's just say if uh, if you know potions was really a class that I had to take, I would be in detention all the time. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we also potions. We received an email this week from Dobby's girl, um, and it says, "In all the times the basilisk has made an appearance, why hasn't Myrtle seen it? It always appear. It always exits through her bathroom. What do you guys think?" I thought that was so smart. I had never thought about the fact that really has Myrtle never seen the basilisk? Even like, you know, because it's only the eyes that do anything to the person. So even as his tail is leaving the bathroom, like she's never noticed. I don't she's, know. Too, she's too busy spying on the boys in the prefix bathroom. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Doesn't she tend to hide sometimes when girls go in there as well? Like she'll go and sit in the U-Bend so she's not necessarily always kind of present in the bathroom. Um, so if she knew that Ginny was going into the bathroom for whatever reason, to summon the basilisk, we know now, um, maybe she would hide and she just wouldn't actually see the snake. Because otherwise she would sure. easily be able to put Ginny at fault as well because she would see her summoning it. Mm, right. Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm sure yeah. she doesn't spend all of her time floating in the bathroom. I don't know. I, I, just, I just feel like she, uh, as a ghost, she just doesn't generally care about things that are going on unless they, you know, relate to her. So if she just saw a snake kind of moving through the bathroom, she'd just be like, oh, that's interesting. But it right. does relate but to her. It's how she died. <laughs> yeah. Which is ironic. 
and she should have put that together, but um, <laughs> I don't think she does. <laughs> yeah, I was just thinking, like, she's seen it before. I mean, she stared into its eyes, it killed her, and then she went back to that same bathroom. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, she notices when a book is thrown through her face, but I think that's because she's mortally more offended, but as I don't think the snake's offending her, so in that way, it doesn't seem of interest. Wait, you think she's mortally offended? Sorry. Bad joke. Ooh. Ooh. <laughs> nice one. Thanks, man. So our final comment on this at the moment is from Claire from our forums. And it says, just wanted to put in my two cents about the sorting hat process. Having a background in uh, psychology, I always thought of the sorting hat as a kind of personality test. Like Hogwarts, the ancient Greek physician Hippocrates created four types of people. Phlegmatic, sanguine, caloric, and melancholic. At the time, these were determined based on a person's type of bodily fluids. Today, they are used to describe one's personality. Phlegmatic is relaxed and quiet. Sanguine is pleasure-seeking and sociable. Choleric is ambitious and leader-like. And melancholic is introverted and thoughtful. After I took this test, I had high scores in both phlegmatic and melancholic. This reminded me of a hat stall at Hogwarts. Not sure if J.K. Rowling knew about these types of personality traits as she created each house, but it's fun to think about what each trait would be would be for each house. I think phlegmatic would be Hufflepuff, sanguine would be Slytherin, choleric would be Gryffindor, and melancholic would be Ravenclaw. Mm-hmm. What do you think? Hmm. Well, wow, that's, as it's interesting. As a Ravenclaw, I definitely don't feel melancholic. I, I'm definitely not introverted. I mean, I'm. I guess I'm thoughtful. I, I don't know. I guess. Yeah, I thought this is introverted a great would be comment. a bit more. Like Hufflepuff, I guess. I wouldn't see Ravenclaws as necessarily introverted either. Yeah, I see melancholic as as Hufflepuff. Not that you guys are introverted, but definitely more quiet. Wouldn't but then Hufflepuffs are also very ambitious? I think. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I don't think. Yeah, I don't think the the Hogwarts houses fit quite as neatly into Hippocrates's um, four humors. Um, I feel as if Slytherins are pleasure seeking and sociable, though. Yeah. No, I see that as Gryffindor. Pleasure seeking and sociable. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, we are. Um, <laughs> me, me, um, I, I, but then Hufflepuff's also been described as a party house occasionally, so you know, pleasure seeking and sociable fits for everyone, really. <laughs> I don't know if I would agree with the personality trait of, of melancholic as being introverted and thoughtful. I tend to associate melancholic with, you know, sadness and and kind of misery so i don't know if that really fits any of the hogwarts houses at all i think there are there are different uses of these words today than what they originally meant um the the four humans um and the kind of measuring them based on bodily fluids which include things like black bile lovely um (laughs) it's it's a a idea that actually stayed for hundreds of years it was the the main idea of medieval medicine here in england um, and then across the rest of Europe as well, I think. Um, well, we all know how that turned out. Yeah. <laughs> but it is interesting to think of, you know, those ideas in terms of Hogwarts, where they, they still mm. use kind of similar medieval practices in some things. You know, you've got all the kind of grand feasts, you've got all of the um, kind of history that Hogwarts has that would go back to medieval times. Um, right. So to consider that if if like Godric Gryffindor and the rest of the founders created this ho- this school on medieval kind of a, a medieval basis then those four houses 
fitting into something similar to those four humors would make a lot of sense. Yeah, that does make sense. I just want to say thank goodness for the sorting hat, because imagine if they didn't do that and they still sorted kind of based on type of bodily fluids. <laughs> it's just That's just pretty gross. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's possible the sorting hat still does that, kind of like an x-ray. <laughs> Ew. But it's interesting in, in terms of like the <laughs> medieval medicine thing. This is me going back into my scholarly views, I'm sorry. Um, but the, the ideal for a medieval person was to have all of these four humours in balance. Mm-hmm. Um, if you had more of one than the other, then there was, you know, there was something wrong with you. Um, mm-hmm. So if you were too melancholic, they would... You know, they. I think it was they would bleed you or something until your blood level went down, oh. um, so that you would be more in balance with the rest of them. Um, so to split all of these four up and to group them is something that it would not have been seen as a good thing. You want to be a mixture of all four, which I think most people are. Yeah, which would be why we have hat stalls. Right. That's really cool. Someone yeah. posted about the four-way hat stall, by the way, on the forums. Apparently it is possible. I just, I think that that's kind of BS, personally. I, I can't, I, well, that's I do. That's a bit I strong, can't, <laughs> I can't, I, <laughs> I can't see, um, how awful would that be? Like, you, how amazing. No, awful. For me, it would be awful because it, I don't want to choose. I want to be told where I want to go, like where <laughs> I'm supposed to be. But if you get sorted in all houses, you are like wizard god. You somehow <laughs> encompass all of the houses in one person. Or you have no strong personality whatsoever and you're just like a limp paper towel laying on the floor. Like there, there's gonna be a there's a there's a listener of the show who's who's a four house hat <laughs> stall and you just compared them to a piece of lint on the floor. <laughs> Sorry about that. But but remember, Kat, it is our choices. Right. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. That's very yeah, true. So it's our Dumbledore says it's our choices, Harry, so the Sorting Hat doesn't even do anything as far as I'm concerned. Let's not get back into that discussion. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, okay. (laughs) Let's move into um, our special feature from last week, which was What If. And we talked about a lot of things, but one of the main things that you guys talked about was what if Harry really was the heir of Slytherin. And Chris, again, from our forums, KaiKid942, one of our moderators, came up with a bunch of different points. The first one was that, um, you know, well, Hagrid tells us that he's he's not. So, and Hagrid, we tend to believe more, especially over Syria, someone like that. The second point was about genetics. You should go to the forums, go to the forums and read the comment. Way too complicated. I didn't get it. Um, but the third one, the third one I thought was really great. So I put it in here. It says, since it's been, quote unquote, over a thousand years since Salazar Slytherin was walking the face of the earth, the potential number of his descendants is absolutely huge, given that wizards and witches reach sexual maturity at the same age as muggles. So even assuming a 20-year-old generational cycle and a stretch of only a 1,000 years, that gives us 50 generations of descendants. Even assuming that two offspring in each generation, that gives a possible number of possible descendants in the last generation or... 1.12 quadrillion, which is over 150 times greater than the current population of the entire planet. Yeah, so... Oh, my. I guess this point is saying that, yes, it's very possible that Harry is a descendant of Salazar Slytherin. I'm pretty sure we all are descendants of Salazar Slytherin. 
Everyone my, on the planet. <laughs> my head hurts from looking at that number. <laughs> I know it's what sixteen places. Yeah, but it has to be said that you know all of this depends on Slytherin actually having children. If he never had children, yeah. then no one is. <laughs> That's true, but we know that he must have because Tom Riddle is obviously a descendant. This is true. Mm-hmm. How ironic would that be if he didn't, though? <laughs> <laughs> That's then true. Like, Chris- we, that couldn't, was just a story. we couldn't say for sure that like Riddle is actually a descendant. It's you know it's it's thought to be through the um, Peverils. Peverils. Is it Peverils or is it someone else? I believe it's through the Peverils to uh, to Slytherin. Okay, no, well, yeah, that, the House I mean, of Thorns his... and all of those. Um, it's all kind of hearsay. So, like, you know, Marvolo could have made it up. Um, mm-hmm. Equally, you know, the Malfoys might be closer descendants um, to to Slytherin than Riddle was by that point. Um, well, I think I think they really claim it on the on the value of knowing uh, parcel tongue being a parcel mouth because that seems to be the most legitimate connection so maybe that just went throughout the lines and at one point there was a large community of parcel mouths who just kind of lived together maybe possible um, because i mean that's that's got to be transferred over right or does that just kind of pop up i think it's one of those um what do they call it um suppressive traits is that it that comes up randomly is that the right word like a redhead Suppressive carrier (laughs) Something? Maybe. I don't know. Like, my niece um, is 15, and she's the only redhead in our family. She has the only redhead for, I don't know, 10 generations. So Can she talk to snakes, too? <laughs> no, she's a Hufflepuff and not happy about it, might I add. Wow. Okay. There's yeah. nothing wrong with being a redhead or a Hufflepuff. It's fine. That's right. <laughs> you know what strikes me Those about- Those are both. You're in trouble. You know what strikes me about this Thanks, comment man. is that there's- um. There's got to be some sort of huge, huge population control on this because, as as he was saying, I mean, one point one two quadrillion people. I mean, that's that that's a lot of people. Um, that's only counting births, not deaths. <laughs> right, exactly. But I mean, I don't think even in the history of the world, there's been that many people. Even when we're sitting at um, the the comment says six point nine billion as of last year. Um, so how many wizards in the wizarding world, wizards and witches, are there in the wizarding world? I, I don't um, I don't think that's ever been estimated, but I doubt mm. it's anywhere near 1.1 <laughs> quadrillion people. Yeah, I always assumed that the population of, you know, the or the ratio of wizards to muggles was, I don't know, maybe 1 to 3,000 or some big number like that. One wizard for every... 3,000 muggles. I don't know. Right, right. Because, I mean, there's been studies about how many students were at Hogwarts, and there's, uh, I guess the general consensus was with that is around 1,000 students. So that's a, a very, very small number for uh, for that. But we, I guess we recently learned as well that there's more wizarding schools than just Hogwarts, Bow Battens, and, and Durmstrang. So mm-hmm. I have it's to say I'm not entirely sure of the maths on this. If there's, if there's 50 generations... And there's only two offspring in each generation, then surely that should only be a hundred people. Hmm. Where did we get to? Well, to the well no, because I think it. Be- I think it becomes a, um, like say the first generation has two, and then those both have two. Oh, okay. Maybe that's what he's. But thinking. that's not what it says. It says assuming only two offspring in each generation. Ooh, Chris, Rosie's calling you out. <laughs> uh oh. <laughs> 
Well, good. You, everyone, just head over to the forums, get in that conversation, because it is huge. It's huge, just like... It's a lot of people. Just like that number. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Um, and our next what-if question comes from the main site, from PygmyPuff94. The user says, Do you think Snape was actually a hat stall between Slytherin and Gryffindor, just like Harry, but he chose Slytherin? No. I doubt no. it. Yeah, no, that's... that's, <laughs> that's- it's hard pill to swallow there because he always looked forward to being in Slytherin. I mean, he even discussed that with Lily whenever they were kids. Yeah. So I don't. I mean, it would have been an interesting, you know, what if Snape was a Gryffindor? That that would be interesting, an idea to kind of trace through how much it would change, kind of subsequent can, events. Can you imagine the dialogue between the Sorting Hat and Snape whenever he got sorted? He he's sitting there thinking, not Gryffindor, not Gryffindor, not Gryffindor, <laughs> and then the Sorting Hat's like, "Are you sure Gryffindor could help you on it on your way to greatness?" Which is true. <laughs> I mean, it's a true statement. <laughs> but uh, he said, "But if you're sure, better be Slytherin." Or maybe he was sitting on on Snape's head. He's like, "You you're dark. You're." You're freak. You're really dark. Just go and Slytherin. Well, that's a <laughs> mean setting hat. <laughs> he was just so scared of Snape's head that he was... Uh, right, exactly. You know, but Snape exactly. is so full of love, even from an early age. He's really not a dark person at all. <laughs> so yeah. what if he was in Gryffindor? How would the story be different? Well, for uh, one, it, Lily would be closer to him. Mm. I think it would have been Lily and Snape. Uh, I don't think it would have been James and Lily. No. Harry would never have been born. No, Harry would would have been born born. all right. (laughs) 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 Just a little bit earlier. No. (laughs) Oh, man. But yeah, I mean, Snape Snape only seemed to be uh, a fit for Gryffindor because Dumbledore has that line, you know, maybe we sort too soon. But that seems to imply that Snape changes over time. His, his virtues or beliefs. I mean, we don't even know if he would agree with that statement because why can't Slytherins also be brave? Maybe Snape believed that you can be brave in in all houses. It right. just seems to be a matter of values. And I think at the end of, end of the day, does he really value bravery more than uh, Ambition. cunningness? Mm. I think a lot of Snape's kind of character progression um, while he's at school depends on his friends who are all Slytherins and, you know, their opinions and... Um, kind of being surrounded by that um, all the time. So if he was in Gryffindor and he had Lily's opinions kind of shaping him all the time, I, I do think he would be a very different person. Um, True. Well, the fact that I, I think Snape is one of those characters, especially at the early age, that he could have, he was shaped, uh, he was shaped very differently and, and was very easy to shape. Because if you remember, um, him and Lily used to sit on the grass all the time and talk about Hogwarts. And, and Snape says, oh, yes, whenever we get there, we'll be in Slytherin and it's going to be great. And then, you know, Lily kind of, she had her own agenda with that. And, and whenever she ended up in Gryffindor, it was kind of like, uh, you know, I don't, I don't think that, um, I don't think that Lily was that easy to shape. And, and Snape was kind of this character that you could just, that was molded he was kind of i don't know what the word is for it like kind of i I don't want to say fickle or anything like that because he was very smart but i think he was just one of those characters that um was very easy to be coerced i mean he 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 joined the death eaters and things like that i mean peer pressure really got to him it seemed like and lily was just kind of this girl who had her head grounded and you know did this and this and this 
Snape was eager. He was eager to fit in, eager to be loved, eager to be needed, wanted, all right. of that. Right. Yeah. Hmm. Makes sense. Um, our last comment here is from Martin Miggs on the forums. It's, okay, so this isn't a what if question, but I thought it was hilarious, so I had to bring it up. It says, when Harry and Ron try to partner up, and this is in the Dueling Club scene, Snape says, time to split up the dream team, I think. Is this a reference to the 1998 USA Olympic Dream Team? And if so, is Severus, Severus Snape secretly an avid Michael Jordan fan? <laughs> the book takes place around the time of the Barcelona Olympics in the year 1992 Dream Team. <laughs> I just thought it was really funny. That is hilarious. That's that's. I never thought of it like that before. I mean, because, you, you know, you read some of these things in the books and you're just like, oh, I think it's time we split the Dream Team up. And you're kind of thinking, oh, haha, that's funny because, you know, it's a little reference and... You know. I'm going to say no because this is 1992 and Michael Jordan isn't going to form the Dream Team for another seven. Oh, wait, no. It's the 92 Dream Team. Oh, oh my. Okay, never mind. But also, <laughs> this is a book written by a UK writer, not a USA writer. <laughs> and although Michael Jordan does a lot of our Olympic coverage here now, um, it doesn't necessarily have to do anything to do with his Dream Team. Dream Team is a common phrase. Right. <laughs> I just thought it was. I just thought it was a funny comment. Thinking about Snape being a a secret Michael Jordan fan. I don't know. Seems pretty hilarious to me. <laughs> oh, maybe, Snape was maybe, totally maybe Joe Wash's basketball. Yeah, yeah. Snape was totally a Jordan fan. You know, he had his um, he had his autograph, and you know, the jersey on under his robes. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Maybe awesome. we should ask why Lee Jordan is called Lee Jordan then. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Nice Maybe one, Rosie. Maybe it's Joe who's the Michael Jordan fan. <laughs> there you go. Could be. <laughs> Who knew? Now we're going to jump into our posed question of the week from last week, our discussion. Um, I I posed a question last week about Polyjuice Potion. Um, it occurred to me that potions are, were a lot like spells in the sense that each potion is produced from a combination of ingredients. For potions, these materials range from lacewing flies to rat tails to newt eyes. For spells, they kind of have their own ingredients. Uh, you know, a single spell is usually produced from a combination of Latin words. We already talked a little bit about this uh, earlier on in the episode. Um, so, you know, thinking about words within spells, can spells be compared to potions as, you know, another form of magic that are composed of many parts? Given this connection between potions and spells, what does, what does this reveal about magic in general? In the, same, uh, in the same way that there exists a certain language of spell work, one Latin word corresponding to an equivalent magical effect. Is there a language of potion making such that each ingredient represents a word, theme, or essence, which when combined with another produces the appropriate potion? So, all right, so that's that's the end of that question. So potions and spells, both having ingredients in a way, one with language, one with actual, um, mm -hmm. actual things. So our first comment comes from the Ravenclaw Authoris. In the first book, Snape describes potion making as the subtle science and exact art of potion making. Sorry, I just changed there. I'm trying to get in my, my Snape voice. <laughs> this, this is a somewhat contradictory statement. Science, science is not as subtle, nor is art exact. So in this way, Snape is almost saying that potions are contradictory to what we think they are. Um, hmm. Well, Snape does go on and on about how it's a subtle science, but also an art. Mm -hmm. um, does that so that kind of kind of means there's a layer of subjectiveness when you're making potion when you're making a potion as if some sort of feeling goes in and then for informs what that potion will do um, and doesn't may, may not necessarily rely on the ingredients um, what, what do you guys think of that, that comment and just the question in general 
well, it's kind of like a painting. I mean, you you could you could describe potion making as um, to, you could uh, you could compare potion making to painting the subtle science and exact art of painting you have to have certain ingredients that go on your canvas which in this case is your cauldron you have to have them go in a certain order you can't just throw all the colors together um, and, and hope for the best you have to have them you know certain brush strokes certain um, mixtures certain um, certain designs in and in, in, in the way that you put these all together on the canvas um it makes everything come together you know all better i don't know yeah. what i was going with that i i normally agree with that but i feel like with potions there's kind of the subjective way you're supposed to do it i know snape has well then again snape invents his own ways but isn't the final product um kind of this similar thing and everyone's kind of aiming to get this perf- perfect final product it, it sounds like there's very little um ability to diversify your uh, your potion or make it an art because as soon as you go away from what its purpose is you you kind of you do something negative to it. Well, if you don't mind, there's a comment here from Fox Fan that I'm going to read. Um, this is from the main site. It says, "I see potion making to be a lot like cooking or baking, which is basically a bunch of ingredients that react with each other when heated. If I'm going to make a cake, I need to add all the correct ingredients, but don't stir it or bake it long enough, my cake will not turn out right." Same goes for making potions. Just like there are great cooks, there are going to be wizards that are great potion makers like Snape. You can give two people the same recipe for chocolate chip cookies, but only one person's cookies may turn out better or worse than the other person's cookies. So that's kind of that. I, it seems like this person agrees with what you were just saying, Noah. Mm-hmm. Right. You can make you can use the same recipe and make two different kinds of cookies, but right. doesn't it sort of inform, though, that there's an objective form of perfect cookie? Like there's a perfect cookie and a worst cookie you could make? Or is it is it more of a line of uh, a range? I think it's more of a range. Um, you can have like an ideal cookie, but it would never. I mean, achieving that ideal would be harder to do, and you can put your own spin on them as well. Like you can have a chocolate chip cookie with nutmeg in it, or with cinnamon in it. It's essentially the same cookie, but with little like flares. Um, and I think it's really interesting that we asked this question the week before. You know, Joe released all of her information on Pottermore about the Polyjuice potion. Um, I mean, she's obviously yeah. listening. Let's yeah, be she's definitely listening. She answered exactly our question this, in the right <laughs> yeah. week as well. Um, what, are the, what are the odds? So I'm going to read out the, the bit that she said on the Polyjuice Potion. Um, she says, I remember creating the full list of ingredients for the Polyjuice Potion. Each one was carefully selected. Lacewing flies, the first part of the name, suggests an intertwining or binding together of two identities. Leeches, to suck the essence out of one and into the other. Horn of bicorn, the idea of duality. Not grass, another hint of being tied to another person. Fluxweed, the mutability of the body as it is changed into another. And boomslang skin, a shedded outer body and a new inner. Um, so going back to your original question, Noah, you were saying that there's a language of potion making, um, just as there's a language of spells. So this proves that, at least in, in Joe's thinking, the actual ingredients have a certain language that all of their kind of essence um, and meaning um, kind of influence the potion itself um, but she later goes on to say about um, Hermione making the potion um, and that the fact that Hermione as a second year being able to create a polyjuice potion that lasts as long as it does is, an, is a really impressive achievement um, whereas you know it should at, at her age she should only be able to make a polyjuice potion that would last say 10 minutes 
rather than the full what is it like three hours that they actually manage mm-hmm. one um, hour I think. one hour fair enough yeah um but yeah there there's so to put hermione's potion skills on our cookie scale she is not the ideal chocolate chip cookie which would be like a 10 hour polyjuice potion um but she's not you know something that you wouldn't want to eat either so you know she's a yeah. she's a decent cookie <laughs> so she's like the kind with the burnt bottom that still tastes pretty good but it's a little burnt yeah you know so, so it's, so it's like not that. perfect yeah she didn't burn it but she's no rachel ray right <laughs> exactly yeah well, in any case, I want to eat these cookies because I'm, I'm like starving. I'm starving right now. <laughs> that I, sounds I, good. Yeah, now I'm, now I'm in the mood for cookies. No. I have animal crackers if anyone wants one. <laughs> just reach to the computer. Um, but yeah, that, that's really interesting, Rosie. Just um, It's great we got that Pottermore information. Um, but it's just it's just crazy to think that these ingredients within themselves hold, um, you know, these like these meanings within them or you know, it's kind of it's kind of crazy, but I guess I guess with the ingredients, they all they already do this. They already have some magical. Um, either they change they change you, or they, um, especially with the bicorn and the the symbol of duality in that. Um, obviously, a lot of complex stuff goes into it, but clearly there is some kind of language. And maybe we could create like a, a dictionary of all the ingredients. Um, maybe you know, maybe Joe will come out with it later on. But if we had it, we could like take each ingredient and look to the meaning that it, it corresponds to. We could make we our, could make you know, our own spells. You can do it with spells too. Yep. Oh, not just cookies. Okay. And with cookies, <laughs> it could be a book. Books, spells, and potions. I mean, cookies, spells, <laughs> That's, and don't mix them. That sounds great. Um, but guys, so I, I know we talked about this briefly uh, a couple episodes ago. But did you finally finish Casual Vacancy? Actually, no, Cat. But I am thoroughly enjoying it. I decided to give it a listen instead of reading, actually, just because it's a it's a much quicker form. You know, I travel so much between school and home that audiobooks are really the most convenient thing for me. I just load them onto my iPad and I go. Oh, that's true, Noah. I, they are pretty convenient. And did you know that Audible is the best place for all your audio downloading needs? Plus, Audible has a really great special offer for our U.S. and Canadian listeners. They can visit our unique link created specifically for them and get a free audio download today right now they just have to go to audiblepodcast.com slash open that's really awesome a friend of mine actually downloaded the book using uh audible's listener program basically you just purchase the book for credit at a super low monthly rate and you can use that anytime for any product that audible offers oh wow that's so cool i i didn't know they did that um so every one of our listeners should take a minute to visit the site and start downloading directly to their computer for easy listening on burn CDs, MP3 players, and even your iPad, iPhones, or Androids. Again, the website made just for you is Audible, A-U-D-I-B-L-E, podcast, P-O-D-C-A-S-T, dot com, slash open, O-P-E-N. So visit audiblepodcast.com, slash open, for your free download today. And with that, we're going to jump right into the chapters we're discussing this week, which are chapters 13 and 14 of Chamber of Secrets, The Very Secret Diary and Cornelius Fudge. Very secret. (laughs) (laughs) Did you really have to write very secret? I mean, it could have just been secret, but why very secret? Well, well, because I don't know. It's it's more intriguing if it's very private. (laughs) Because it's the secret to opening the Chamber of Secrets. It's, it's an uber secret. secret. It's secret squared. It's, it's a secret within a secret. Right. <laughs> but yes, we start chapter 13, the very secret secret diary. And it's chapter 13 as well, so it's, you know, unlucky for some. 
with Hermione in the hospital wing because her polyjuice potion went wrong last week. Um, so we, we start off the chapter by seeing Ron and Harry bringing her homework every day um, and filling her in on the day's news. How sweet is it that Ron and, him, Ron and Harry actually bring her this homework, you know? Would would your friends bring you homework every single day if you were if, in the hospital? If I had a cat face on, I sure as heck hope they would. <laughs> <laughs> Just saying. It's, it's probably like the best present Hermione's gotten in a while, though. Homework. She doesn't really want, like, treats or anything else like the others would want. She just wants to get the homework. Even though she's not in class, she already has memorized the books. Right. I wouldn't want to see anyone, though, if I had a cat face. I would be like, no, just, you know, send it with Hedwig. Not even your best friends? Probably not. It's too embarrassing. I'd be scared if she tried to eat Hedwig. Oh, my God. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I I wonder if the the cat appearance goes along with some cat, uh, you know, Tendencies, yeah. Hairballs and such. Nice. Yeah, books don't go into that strangely. <laughs> um, but why didn't uh, why didn't Madame? I know Madame Pomfrey doesn't ask questions, but didn't she? Ha- doesn't she have to ask a little bit so that she knows how to treat the condition? I would yeah, and why did none of her? If if her teachers are giving her this homework every single day, why did none of them seem to mind that you know she's in the hospital wing for no she real reason? Done. Surely someone should ask questions. Actually, Snape's probably enjoying the fact that uh, she's not raising her hand. <laughs> But uh, yeah, it's it's interesting. I mean, they don't really they don't really talk about that in the book series. How long is she out? Like three weeks? No, she doesn't get back to classes until like mid February, just before Valentine's Day. Mm. So she's out like a good eight eight or nine weeks since it's over Christmas that they take the polyjuice. And then when she gets petrified, she's out again for like the rest of the year. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Poor Hermione, she does not have a good second year at Hogwarts. But so it's I fine because she's already working that... on like fourth year level anyway. <laughs> right, yeah. right. Yeah. But I guess that, that might have influenced her why she, um, when they're picking classes for next year, she goes for all of them because she just wants to make up, up for all of her lost uh, work. Sure. And she's an overachiever, let's be honest. Yeah. That's Interesting it. thoughts. <laughs> um, so when Ron and Harry are visiting her, they spot a gold card underneath her pillow, which has been sent by Lockhart. You know, slightly inappropriate. Your teacher sending you a get well card, but still. Um, and at this point, I'd just like to say congratulations to Kenneth Branagh on his knighthood b- being given by the Queen just this week. It's definitely more impressive than a third-class Order of Merlin. <laughs> I would say so. Yeah. A lot of people are <laughs> oh, yes. saying it's about time. So Definitely. Did you notice that on his uh, on Lockhart's Get Well card, it's like one line of, uh, I hope you I hope you get better, and then the rest of the card is all, all of his, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. his honors, yeah. which are actually longer than his Get Well message. Yeah. Maybe it's just a generic card that he sends out whenever anyone writes to him to say that they're ill. I'm sure he writes every line, though, word for word, every time. (laughs) Do you think he went and hand-delivered it himself, or do you think he just... Oh, Hermione would die if Lockhart showed up in in the hospital wing. Especially (laughs) when she had a cat face. Yeah. Right, right. Oh, I hope... I I feel like they have a weird... (laughs) They have a weird relationship. It's actually a... um, scrutinized more closely in a very Potter musical senior year. This is true. (laughs) (laughs) I hope that manages to come out eventually for everyone else. It's not on YouTube, right? No, not yet. Senior year's not there yet, no. But then it was a five-hour show, so it's going to take Oh my god, that was the longest show ever. (laughs) Not that I... That was, was, for Rosie and I, that was the greatest, one of the grandest times of our life. I was going to say, not that I was there, but you know. Yeah, I I wasn't there either. (laughs) We got invited, but kind of we were at the table. 
Yeah, we had to, we had to man the table. Anyway, off. They, yeah, that's off they topic. invited me to be on the show, but I couldn't. Oh, I'm sure they did. No. <laughs> anyway, Ron has a epic reaction to this card, really, where he's kind of pointing out how kind of slightly creepy it is that she's kind of sleeping with this under her, under her pillow. Um, but Harry's opinion is never mentioned, so I've kind of wondered whether this is, you know, Ron's reaction is one of the first signs of his crush on Hermione. You know, he's a bit jealous that she's giving Kenneth Branagh's character all this attention. Uh, Maybe subconsciously, yeah. He probably doesn't know that he likes her yet, but, you know, boys have this weird way of insulting people that they like, so. This is true. <laughs> I never did that. I think that's a load of... Load of gum. Let's go ask your mom. I bet you did. <laughs> That's not true. I don't even talk to girls until I was like 15. That but I would see, you have but... been jealous if someone that you liked had been getting kind of get well soon cards from other people and you hadn't sent one yourself? Especially a famous handsome witch. Wizard. Wizard, sorry. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, I could see that. Um, I know they kind of played it up in the Chamber of Secrets movie. They uh, like They had the awkward hug at the end, but I didn't really feel it as much in the book. Maybe not, but maybe this is one of the subtle signs that, you know, it was there. Perhaps. There's something Perhaps. that wasn't there before. Um, there's, a, there's a line in the description that says, Snape had given them so much homework, Harry thought he was likely to be in sixth year before he had finished it. And I just, picking up on what we were saying earlier, I thought it was so interesting that they used sixth year here and not seventh. After all, Harry doesn't actually get a seventh year at Hogwarts, but it's a bit, it's nice and circular that they're using the book two and book six. Um, book references um, so you've got this whole idea of the circular tale where book one corresponds to book seven, book two, book six book three, book five and then book four is the centre right, um, right So, and there is so much in this chapter that does actually correspond to book six so I'll, I'll continue pointing them out as we go yeah I can't, I can't wait I mean this is so far off but you know, once we finish all the books and we can go back and look at all the things that connect between them, it's oh, it's going to be incredible. I can't wait. And you guys kind of made this connection earlier um, with their circular tale with the dueling club, Sectum Sempra and Rictus yep. Sempra. So, yeah. Good stuff. So we see that Filch has been manning the corridor where Mrs. Norris has been attacked. Um, but, you know, why hasn't... We, saw, we spoke about Myrtle earlier, but why hasn't Filch spotted the basilisk if he's always there um also again it's slightly inappropriate that he's hanging out around outside the girls bathroom (laughs) yeah well i mean i never thought of that it it's obviously working you know kind of like you put put down here that Ginny now Ginny isn't going into the bathroom to get the basilisk because well felch is standing guard Mm -hmm. so it's his own fault he's not catching anyone (laughs) <laughs> he's I mean, not very it, it subtle a, yeah. and, it, and it seems like the snake is purposely picking times when, when the students are not around to go out Yeah, um, like especially during like uh, later in the Quidditch scene everybody is outside so but you know that said it is a pretty big snake it's weird that nobody seems to see it well it's using the pipes Noah <laughs> well I know I know he's in the pipes but, but it has to be out of the pipes like, at some points Unless they're like secret holes around uh, around Hogwarts and he's just kind of peeping out. That's what I would like to know. I mean, how does this huge snake end up in the hallway and then poof, kind of disappear? <laughs> I mean, does it get under See, the invisibility cloak? Now I've got the image of like what? 
you know all of those kind of comedy things where you've got the portraits with eyes that move because there's oh, someone yeah. standing behind it now I've just got the image of basilisk eyes being in those portraits <laughs> <laughs> yeah the, the portraits they haven't seen anything either yeah oh yeah petrify a portrait that would be interesting that would be cool no it would Maybe just it would be just like be a, a regular, regular painting yeah <laughs> everyone would be really confused <laughs> that is imagine funny that, that happening to something like you know the fat lady where like you wouldn't be able to get into Gryffindor house because the fat lady's been petrified <laughs> then you'd then you'd have uh Hogwarts students on their own podcast trying to reason why the pictures aren't moving and what happened to those uh, <laughs> those characters. It is pretty convenient though that no portrait has seen it either. I never thought of that before. Maybe Whoa. it's just where are all of these students attacked? Are they all attacked in that same stretch of corridor? Because then you know, surely you just block off that corridor. Well, no. Hermione and Penelope were found in the library or just outside the library, right? Are there portraits right outside the library though? Or are they only in the main hall? I don't know. Let me call up my wizard friend and I'll ask. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> but anyway, um, we we know that Filch was outside this bathroom because he is complaining that there is water all over the floor. And mm-hmm. when Harry and Ron hear him yell, they go up, they rush upstairs quickly um, and find that whilst Filch has just left, Myrtle is in her bathroom crying her eyes out. So being the nice friends that they are, whilst everyone else always avoids her, they go and check on Myrtle, which I think, you know, definitely points to Harry and Ron at this moment. It's very nice of them to go and see her. And she says the classic line, you know, someone threw a book in my head and 10 points if you get it through her head, 550 for getting through her stomach or whatever it is, Um, which was brilliant in the movie. I love that scene. It was perfect. Um, But Ron stops Harry from picking up the book. And I was just wondering, you know, is Ron always the more careful of the two? Because I always thought of him as a more kind of outgoing character. I thought he was more more kind of up for everything. Um, but I think that's just me reading the wrong things into moments, really. It's interesting that to me that he would, you know, hold Harry back and try and protect him at this moment. I think Ron's a bit of a scaredy cat, quite yeah, honestly. Yeah, I would have to agree with Cat. I mean, he, even in future chapters, I'm sure what you guys are going to discuss, he's like, the forest? We're going into the dark forest? You That's know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't I don't even know if it's necessarily scaredy cat, though. I think he just has, besides Harry and Hermione, he has more interactions with, uh, you know, wizarding stuff, like the magical world. And his dad's, like, head of the, you know, the... The artifact inspecting unit? What, misuse of muggle misuse, artifacts. Yeah. Misuse of muggle artifacts. So he knows about artifacts that can, you know, go to whack, and especially dark magical things. And on top of that, I think he uh, he's, he's somewhat superstitious in a way mm-hmm. he, um, throughout the books. And he also has a sense of dark objects. Like, he seems to be being pretty reasonable. But I think it goes to the fact that he's so virtue. He's got this good virtue within him. He can just kind of sense when dark objects are around to some degree. And maybe he just like he was spot on here, and he could see it in the uh, in the diary. Sure, it just seemed a bit yeah. odd to me that he would be so kind of suspicious of you know what is essentially just a small book in a bathroom. There's no real reason for him to be afraid of this book at this point, other than you know someone's tried to flush it away. Yep. Well, well, I mean, at the same time, the author's building up our expectations. This that, is true. You know. <laughs> well, just dealing with the stuff that he has, or. or the stuff that he's heard in the past with, um, you know, possible dark objects, just as you were saying, Noah, um, and, and his dad working with the, the misuse of Muggle artifacts office. He, he knows that 
there's objects out there that can hurt, especially books. I mean, he went into this whole spiel about books, uh, saying that there's some that can burn out your eyes, burn out your eyes, and some that you can't stop reading, um, and things like that. So, I mean, he's just so the message of the scene being, is books are dangerous. <laughs> <laughs> books are dangerous. <laughs> this is this must be why he hates homework. Why he hates reading? <laughs> Possibly, he's, he's frightened. Maybe, yeah. Thinking about those books, I like reading those scenes. I thought that was crazy. Like you, you can read it, and then you'll be like citing sonnets for your entire life, or you can't like that. These are those are just kind of funny. I mean, I'm, I believe that it obviously it's true in the Wizarding World, or maybe you just heard these stories. But those are those are pretty funny. <laughs> you know what I thought about um, whenever uh, what was it? There was a line in the in the chapter saying, "And everyone who read sonnets of a sorcerer spoke in limericks for the rest of their lives." Doesn't Peeves speak in limericks? So is it possible he could have gotten hold of a book or something? Huh. He does. That's true. That's what I thought about. Uh, I mean, an example might be like there once was a wizard named Harry whose childhood was far from being merry or something like that. But, I mean, that's Peeves automatically comes to mind whenever I think of something like that. So he read a cursed book at some point. Uh, that's what I'm thinking, Yeah. Maybe I feel like he couldn't be as affected. I think that just goes to his uh, his playful spirit. Uh, it automatically translates into a kind of poetic language. I'm fairly sure he or says at least some that was my shorter take. things as well that aren't limericks. Yeah, he definitely has. Mm-hmm. Oh well. So the first thing that Harry concludes about T.M. Riddle when he picks up for this book is that he's Muggleborn, um, all based on the fact that this book was bought in the Muggle world. So it got me thinking, you know, did did Riddle hide his blood status from his friends at school, being a Slytherin and being kind of surrounded by pure bloods like the Malfoys? Um, Hmm. And if so, you know, how did others not make connections like Harry if they could see things that had obviously been bought in the Muggle world? Or is it simply that we're told this because it's an important plot point later in the books? Um, Again, where, you know, in book six, we found out a lot more about Riddle's early life. I mean, isn't it said that he told them, told, you know, his classmates that he was a pureblood? Because doesn't Bellatrix think that he's a pureblood? Right. I think a lot of his followers do. I think if if any of his followers knew that he wasn't, they would, I don't know, they would question him. They wouldn't, they wouldn't be as faithful to him. Right. They would think he's tainted in some sort of way. I you always they, thought that Bellatrix was younger. Was, was Bellatrix part of his school group? Mm, no, she. I feel like she. I feel like she was in the sixth book. Maybe. Mm. I know that I Malfoy was, but he was so. meant to be a lot I don't lot think younger. so. I think she's younger. Because if we think about Moaning Myrtle died fifty years ago, um, at at this particular point in the in the story, and Bellatrix, I don't think Bellatrix is anywhere near uh, that age. Sixty. Yeah. Approximately. Yeah. yeah. I think she was she was more along the lines of at school with you know Remus Tonks and the rest of the order, well most of the order rather. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I agree. she's Sirius's cousin, um, so that would be his generation. So yeah, she could be older than Sirius for sure, mm-hmm. but not by that much. Hmm. I just feel like I remembered from the book. That's that's interesting though. I think um, like I think Malfoy is meant to be a first year when Riddle is leaving. Riddle's in seventh year, so I think that's the the connection the age difference yeah yeah um more to the more to the fact that this is a, a a book that was bought in the muggle world isn't it interesting that his first i guess one of his, his first horcrux is a uh 
it's just a, a muggle like a, a book he bought just on a, on a street and he made it uh he made it magical yeah because because all the other objects are deeply rooted into uh deeply rooted with the other founders or they they they're essentially magic but this one uh, mm-hmm. he actually transformed it like a normal perceivably conceivably a normal diary into a but, the, but then he gave it away and didn't bother trying to hide it anywhere so i think that says a lot about how little he cared about his muggle life do you think that riddle actually wrote the diary when he was younger or was it just a book that he you know put into into use as this horcrux because well, everything was, else I... he's picked has meant something to him in some way so right. If it had been, you know, his personal diary, which had his whole life story in it for that year, then it would be an incredibly personal thing that he would be creating. Um, yeah, I mean, he put his he put his soul into it, um, you know, like because it was a Horcrux. I don't think he'd have, he'd have done that with a, an object that wasn't personal. So maybe creating the Horcrux was a process of really legitimately writing out those memories in the diary, right? Um, and pouring his soul into it that way. And when a wizard does that, maybe it, um, all you have to do is kill someone, and like that imprint of your mem- of your memories in journal form, maybe became the consciousness of the Tom Riddle that's there. Maybe it informed the character that you know eventually tried to rise out of the out of the diary. I don't well, necessarily I- think that the two things are linked. I think that you know the part of his soul that resides in the diary is just a part of his soul, um, not like a written word part, but you know the same as every other. Um, Part a piece of soul that is put into other Horcruxes, but I think right. that you know he could have easily you know wiped a diary or created a magical diary that would hide all of his thoughts from other people. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it can be a personal diary without it having to contain the words that he wrote at that time. See, I I don't see the diary as a traditional Horcrux. I mean, because do we learn that he actually murdered somebody to make this? I don't think he did. Moaning Myrtle. He he murdered everybody. Yeah, Moaning Myrtle. Yeah, he he killed everybody to to make you know each and every Horcrux and and I forget um everything. You can't make a Horcrux without killing somebody. But right. he didn't kill her. The Basilisk did. But he ordered the Basilisk too, and I think he I think it's been said that he used that death, that energy of that death to create the Horcrux of the diary. I feel like that's But cool. then you could use the energy of any death to make a Horcrux. If that were the case, I think Tom would actually physically have to kill her. I don't think Tom's in seventh year during this either. I don't think, you know, all of his conversations um, with with Dumbledore and with um, Slughorn that we see later on in, in later books, they haven't taken place when Myrtle is right. killed. Right. Um, he is a prefect, so he's got to be fifth year, fifth year at least. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but he's not head boy yet. Um, wait. So this is wait. This is becomes. 1992. They said 50 years ago. So that would have been 1942. So wow, that's even before Dumbledore got really big. Yeah. Well, yeah. Dumbledore isn't um, the headmaster at this point. He's just a transfiguration right. teacher. And hasn't fought Grindelwald yet. Right. No. Right. Um, but I still feel like the that Moaning Myrtle Myrtle's death was his uh, his fault because he he definitely controls the basilisk. Well, no, right? it was definitely he, his, his fault, fault. But I think he murders someone else. Later on, to, to create make the diary, diary. or the, or the diary, like I said, isn't like a a traditional Horcrux. It's he figured out some other way to put a piece of him in there because it's not like it doesn't act like any of the other Horcruxes. But you I know? think well, that's because that, it's a yeah. bigger part of his soul. Yeah, 
Because it was the first one? Yeah, it's essentially 50% of his soul, whereas later on it gets smaller and smaller. The most untainted part. Yeah. Ooh, okay. It's literally hmm. kind of his childhood within a Horcrux, within a so it's like So but- it's like he ripped the muggle piece out of him, or the muggle part, and stuck it in the book. Or hmm. his teenage angst. <laughs> yeah. Well, 50% of him, but... Don't you think that the other Horcruxes, if given the same opportunities, could have also risen up out of their themselves and become new Tom Riddles? I don't clones? think they're as powerful, no. No. I, I don't. I don't think on their own they could have done that. But I think you know, with a bit of magic, that they could have. Yeah, it, well, yeah. If the trio had yeah. kept wearing the the locket, I mean, I think it definitely eventually would have affected them far worse than it did. Right. Yeah, so I feel like if any of those smaller Horcruxes, given the right circumstances, could have potentially become more and more powerful to the extent of maybe one or two of them being powerful enough to suck out a soul. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Not convinced, but anyway. This is a big This is a big question, all these, so uh, if any fans are listening, definitely comment in the forums and we'll be talking about this next episode. Yeah. Yeah. So Hermione is intrigued by the ideas of hidden powers um, rather than being afraid of the book. Um, So she doesn't have the same fears that Ron did, which I thought was surprising. I thought Hermione would always be more careful. Um, But they all cleverly make the links between all of the events of 50 years ago um, and, you know, the diary and Riddle and the chamber being opened. Um, They haven't yet thought of Hagrid, but we'll we'll get onto that more later. Um, When Hermione tries to find out if there are kind of hidden words within the book all of her magical solutions fail her so her spells and her kind of magical artifacts won't reveal anything um and i thought you know it would have been nice to see her reaction at this point um to see you know how she would handle kind of all of her brand new magical skills failing her because i think she would be quite upset um but my thought is, you know, if they've got this link that everything happened 50 years ago and they know that the ghosts have been at Hogwarts school for longer than 50 years, why don't they go and ask? Why do they never think to ask the ghosts who must have seen a lot of things? That seems like that... they... Oh, go ahead, Terrence. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No. You, you go. Okay. Um, I don't... They've tried... I think they've tried to ask the ghosts questions before, but the ghosts really kind of give vague answers and... Um, as we discussed earlier, they really don't pay attention or care as to what's going on. I mean, anything yeah. that's not directly affecting them. I completely agree. They they seem entirely self-occupied, and that just goes to the nature of ghosts in general, because these are beings that have, you know, they've stayed on Earth because they have their own, they have their own issues. They have their own personal and agenda, the, yeah. You know, so that's why, you know, in the seventh book, it works out for Harry, but with um, Helena Ravenclaw, but... That was in regards to something that was deeply personal, maybe even you know connected, to, deeply connected to why she's still on Earth. So I think unless you're asking them something direct about their own lives, they they really just give you these vague answers. Well, and the only ghost that might give him any sort of real answer is petrified. So that's true. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. <laughs> they don't really talk to any other ghosts, do they? Nope. Okay. So there's a line that says Harry couldn't explain even to himself why he didn't just throw away throw Riddle's diary away. And I was thinking, could this be, you know, the magnetic link between the Horcruxes being drawn to each other? They He can't explain it, even to himself, but it's there. It's kind of yeah, drawn to I, each uh, other. Yeah, I definitely felt that when I was reading Agreed, completely. Yeah, definitely. 
Cool. Well, that one's answered quickly. Well done. Yeah. <laughs> I disagree. Who was that? <laughs> was that our ghost host again? Our ghost host disagreed with us Damn just you to peeps. keep the conversation. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, no, no, I think uh, we all we all felt that because, um, like, even when Ron was saying it's it's bad, he you know he kept trying to toy with it, and I think Harry has such a he's so active in the community. I think he like would have got bored if there wasn't something drawing him to it. Sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So Ron makes the link. At the, the trio go to see the um, the trophy room to try and find out more about Riddle. And Ron makes the link between Riddle and Percy because he's head boy, he's prefect, he's got these awards. You know, he seems like he's kind of a, a goody two-shoes, top of all the classes, that kind of character. And Hermione responds saying, you say that like it's a bad thing in a slightly hurt voice. And I just thought it was interesting that the novels, the villain of the novels, holds si- uh, very many similarities to all of the trio, not just Harry. So it's Ron and Hermione who become the prefects um, and Hermione and Harry who are top of every class thinking of um, Defence Against the Dark Arts for Harry. Um, so it's not just Harry that he shares all of these traits with, but he is most different from Ron, who is, you know, the pure blood ideal. He is, he may be a blood traitor, but he's got most of the things that Voldemort always wanted. But Ron is also seen as, you know, the biggest champion of both familial and romantic love. So maybe that's why he's got this biggest difference. What do you guys think? I think Ron is actually a lot like Tom Riddle. I think that he's he's okay, not a lot, but he definitely shares the um I think the the jealous side of Tom Riddle and I guess sure. that's part of the reason why the the locket affects him so. I I think that Tom was a very jealous boy. He was jealous of everybody, of their possessions, of their of their family, their life, their their friends, everything. So I I don't know. That's a good. That I never thought about that before, though. Hmm. I mean, that of... seems to be how Horcruxes work, especially the locket with uh, with Ron. Mm-hmm. You know, there's like one personality trait that allows Voldemort to get in. Yeah. Yeah. But it got, it does kind of add to the idea that Harry, Ron, and Hermione need each other to be the full hero, whereas you know Voldemort is the full villain, all on his own. Right. Hmm. So the Mandrakes are becoming moody teenagers. Um, which is just, I love that description of them where they, they're kind of, I can't even remember what the actual line is now, unfortunately, but it it's says they're, brilliant. It says, um, the mandrakes were becoming moody and secretive, meaning they were fast leaving childhood. Yeah. I just, I love that idea that, you know, the, the readership age of this book, you know, you're supposed to think is something along the same lines as the age of Harry and Hermione. So they are, they're, they're 12, 12 going on 13 at this moment. So they're becoming teenagers themselves. So to recognise the humour of Mandrakes becoming moody teenagers <coughs> within the books, um, when your readers are also kind of on the brink of becoming these moody teenagers, is a brilliant piece of writing. I mean, I mean, the Mandrakes really capture life for kids. I mean, you, you yeah. grow up and then you start moving into each other's pots and then you get killed with a knife. <laughs> <laughs> and- Terribly, even though you might be semi-conscious. I am so... This, this whole section freaks me out because Mandrakes are so, you know like us though they you know they're very human obviously but at the end of the day they're just going to be killed and used for uh you know anti anti freezing cream but (laughs) (laughs) which is obviously important but we have to we have to think about (laughs) are these mandrakes being hurt i ask you we don't have to think about that not right now i don't think anybody really cares 
That's true, Terrence. The, the people Nobody be, cares about the poor mandrakes. Right. I, I mean, they're there for a purpose, and, you know, they're going to serve their purpose, and once they're done, they're done. And, I mean, that's what they're there for. It's not like you're going to have, uh, you know, advocacy, advocacy groups for mandrake <laughs> rights or anything like that. I, I know. I just, whenever I think about the mandrakes, though, I just think of Pomona with her, like, her chainsaw, <laughs> you know, whatever she uses. She's like, she's seeing them getting into each other's pots, and she's like, all right, guys, party's over. <laughs> but uh, she puts her mask on. She, you know. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I was saying that, you know, why is there not a mandrakes liberation front? Why is Hermione not worried about all of these mandrakes? They have yeah. personalities. How can we kill something that has its own kind of little human life going on just for our own use? We don't kill house elves. Because a Mandrake no. Liberation Front would be like MILF. And <laughs> that, wouldn't, <laughs> that wouldn't be good. Oh, yeah. Sorry. <laughs> anyway. I'll start MILF. So, I'll start it. You know what? I'm going to start it because I'm, a, I'm an activist. How about we just okay. call it MLF? Emma. All right. Because it's not spew, it's S-P-E-W. Remember that. This is true. So MLF, Mandrake's Liberation Front. We should create (laughs) t-shirts. Anyway. All right, fans, fans, if you would like to join uh, MLF, um, I'm going to make a forum in my, I'm going to make a thread in my forums. Just put your name down there and you can be on a secret email where we actually, uh, we think about fighting back. <laughs> Meetings are every Tuesday. It'll be, uh, it'll be- and you can stand outside like the Salvation Army people and get money for them, all of that. And we'll all be wearing really fetching earmuffs. We, we could have we could have like uh MLF day. Like Oh yes. <laughs> like MLK Day, but different. Yes, exactly. We march for Mandrakes. <laughs> Is it really different? Is it really different, Kat? What? Is it Is it really different from, from MLK civil rights? I'm mean, talking about civil rights for Mandrakes. Maybe. It, yes, I think it's very different. All right, yeah. <laughs> anyway, right. It's, meanwhile, it's really the attacks different. have stopped. <laughs> Getting back onto, the, onto our discussion. <laughs> so the attacks have stopped, and it is Valentine's Day, and Lockhart has unleashed these card-carrying cupids, which are, you know, violent, embarrassing dwarves. I would hate to receive or just, or to send, or just second-hand embarrassment is horrible. I would just not want to see these card-carrying cupids anywhere. Um, unfortunately, Ginny decides to send one to Harry, um, and it attacks him in the middle of this really crowded corridor, um, (laughs) says that he has to sing this song to him, um, which I think Noah must want to sing by now, surely. Right, Noah? Yeah? Yeah, of course. Okay. Um, let me just bring it up. It's on page 238. His eyes are as green as a fresh pickled toad. His hair is as dark as a blackboard. I wish he was mine. He's really divine. The hero who conquered the Dark Lord. <laughs> it's brilliant. Which, you know, is it's a nice rhyme for a first year little girl. It's good. Yeah. Um, but it's horribly embarrassing. And unfortunately, in this, in this kind of scuffle that this card-carrying Cupid has caused, Harry's bag has split and the contents have gone all over the floor, including um, an ink pot that has cracked and gotten on everything. Um, and, of course, the diary, which Ginny now sees that Harry has. Um, so, again, this is another clue that is so obvious on a reread, but on the first read, it just looks like Ginny is being scared. I know, it was perfect. It's really good, isn't it? Like, you think that she's just afraid of how Harry and Malfoy will react, but no, it's because of the diary. Yeah. It's a brilliant bit of writing. 
Um, but I thought it was quite interesting that it's Drake, Draco that causes this issue when it's, you know, it's kind of going against his dad's plans. Ultimately, you know, it would have been up, right up Riddle Street if Harry had kept the diary and if Riddle had been able to, you know, possess Harry rather than Ginny. But we see Harry's first use of Expelliarmus and he uses it against Draco just like he later will to win the Elder Wand. Yeah. Draco's just dumbfounded. I didn't know it works on books too. I thought it just worked on, you know, it's supposed to unarm someone, but can it really unbook you as well? It seems to just get anything that you're holding out of your hand. Maybe if it has like a magical quality in it. And and that mm. could be, you know, something that Harry didn't even know. I mean, he just kind of threw up a spell really quick and didn't expect anything to come of it. But I mean, it, it did. Although- so that- Wait, guys, crazy idea. What? What if he he beat he beat Draco for the book? So now the book answers to Harry. So but the book Tom was Riddle never in Draco's like possession. Control. He took it. <laughs> he took it though with Expelli Arms. That means he won Voldemort. <laughs> so technically, mm. he now possesses two parts of Voldemort's soul. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Anyway, it's like one of those necklaces that you have to. One of those half heart necklaces. Oh, technically, half half half, <laughs> half of Voldemort's soul necklace. Technically, you could be armed with a book, though. I mean, if you hit someone around the head with a book, it's fairly hard. Smack somebody upside shame. the head with a book and yell "Expel Ramus. Yeah. I just wanted to. I it, wanted it, it to. I wanted to comment on the fact that if if it works for anything magical, then it shouldn't have worked when Snape shot it at Lockhart. True story. <laughs> It just just hits him. Well, I guess when there's nothing to disarm, it just kind of nails you. No, I was I was trying. I was making a bad joke about Lockhart not being magical. Anyway. Yeah, I got it. Oh, I got it. <laughs> Sorry. But yes, later on, Harry notices that the diary has absorbed all of the ink that had spilt in this accident. Everything else is covered in ink, but the diary is perfectly clean. So he decides to write in it, and then we see the diary that talks back. You know, is this dream come true or nightmare? Not entirely sure. And, you know, it's eventually we find out that it's Voldemort that talks back, so it really is a nightmare. But I thought it's interesting considering, you know, this is a while back now, but, you know, instant chat messaging was around. You had this brand new kind of modern technology that allows people to talk to people on the internet without knowing who they are. Mm-hmm. Um, could Riddle's diary be used as a parallel for internet safety? You should, you know, never trust oh. someone you don't know. Wow. I shouldn't be talking so to you guys. <laughs> but we've good. met, Rosie. This is true. <laughs> yeah, you can talk to me. You're much um, nicer than Voldemort. And I don't Aww, know anything thanks. about the Chamber of Secrets. So <laughs> I don't <good>. either. <laughs> <laughs> if you go to an anonymous chat room online, though, in 1992, people would tell you, though. You should go into a random chat anyway. room and type in, does anybody know anything about the Chamber of Secrets? Oh, that would be hilarious. You'll have somebody saying, no, but I can show you. <laughs> <laughs> and that's in fact what he says, doesn't he? It is. <laughs> but this is our first time exploring a memory. So yet again, we have our such important circular story mm. where book two, we are introduced to the idea of we can actually go into memories, look around and explore them. Book mm-hmm. six, oh. it's the entire plot of the book. Yeah. We're reading and, the know, same book. We really are. And Hogwarts hasn't really changed much in 50 years. Dumbledore's even still there, but he's being a normal teacher rather than a uh, headmaster. And we see that Riddle's main wish is to stay at Hogwarts over the summer, which is, you know, Harry would die for that wish. He would he would love to stay at Hogwarts over the summer rather than going back to 
to stay with the the Dursleys. Right. Yep. Um, Harry immediately and, connects with him over uh, over that and the yeah. jet black hair. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Um, but we see that the only reason that Riddle stops the attacks is so that he doesn't have to return to the Muggle world, which makes it interesting to think about what's more important to him: his own personal, you know, life um, and fears of you know being stranded in this Muggle orphanage again, um, or his idea that he wants to cleanse the world of mudbloods. Oh, definitely his own personal world. I think that he's far more concerned about himself at this time. He really hates mudbloods, though. I don't know. I disagree. But why can't he just, you know, does he actually have no friends at this point? Could he not go and stay with someone else over the summer? I mean, he, mu- he must have friends. Stays with he doesn't really have any friends. Well... Not quote-unquote friends, as Dumbledore says, because he doesn't think he ever really had friends, but definitely but he has people. manipulative. Right. So why can't he manipulate someone into inviting him to stay? That way he would have been able to carry on his attacks for many more months, I don't think, I, I think he was just content with being by himself. I don't, I don't think that he really wanted or needed anybody that he would have to depend on. He's always been that kind of, of person to where he doesn't, like to depend on people, like even at the orphanage. Um, he didn't like to depend on any of his friends or, or any of the people that were there, rather. I mean, I wouldn't even say that he had friends at the orphanage. Um, you know, he's just always been that that kind of cool cat doing his own thing. Well, not so cool. He killed people, Terrence. Uh, I, I, <laughs> I get that. And he doesn't have friends. I mean, he has followers. That's why he's on Twitter and not Facebook. Nice. <laughs> Fair enough. So wow. Harry follows Riddle down um, into the dungeons, um, and we see him hiding in the place that would later become Snape's classroom, which I thought was an interesting point that, you know, it doesn't really seem to have much significance, but it's interesting that Snape would choose that particular dungeon later on if it is kind of a, a hiding place that Riddle used fairly often. Mm-hmm. Huh. And so we wait, um, and we see Hagrid come down, finally. Um, And Riddle addresses him, you know, as a friend. We see that, you know, Harry and Draco never address each other with their first names. It's always Malfoy and Potter. But Tom Riddle refers to Hagrid as Rubeus. Mm -hmm. Do you think that's important at all? Was Hagrid perhaps a friend of Riddle as an outcast? I mean, both were kind of outcasts, really. In their own ways, but I don't think that they were so much outcasts that they came together, you know, and were friends or anything like that. I think they just kind of knew each other by association um, with classes and different things like that. Yeah, I, I just feel I like they wouldn't, they wouldn't really okay. get on as friends, you know. So to me, it's just really interesting that they use first names for pretty much every time like Tom is referred to as Tom during this right um this scene where yeah. I would have thought that the use of surnames within schools was more of an old fashioned thing so why is it picked up later on when it's not present at this time are we just trying to kind of humanize Tom Riddle a bit more and get that bit more of a personal kind of attachment to him that would later be destroyed well because dippet says he when Tom first walks into the room, he says, ah, Riddle. But then the next page, he says, you can go, Tom. So 
Maybe it's just a less casual thing. I don't know. I never had thought to be of something, that. Yeah, it had to be something casual. I mean, because at this point, the readers don't even know that the, the, the connection between Tom Riddle and Voldemort. No. So, I mean, I think it's just, I, I think it's something casual, you know. Uh, I don't know. It's... I no think meaning. just the, yeah. the overuse of his first name makes him more likable as a character. Agreed. So I think... Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. It's just an interesting stylistic choice at this point. And I think that's that's um, what Joe's trying to create here. I'm, I'm just going to finish up this thought. But I, I think yeah. that's the, the illusion that Joe's trying to create here is that she's... In this story, it's trying to create the reader to be able to trust Tom Riddle. And I mean, because we're reading everything from Harry's point of view, obviously. So I think it's at this point, it's getting it's trying to convince Harry, you know, and show that that little personable um, thing like you guys were just talking about, you know, make, make it more relatable. Yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah. It's creating Which, world. And um, from a purely writing standpoint, she called Hagrid uh, Rubius, I think, to set up that uh, let the re- let, her, let the dawn on the reader that it's Hagrid so that she could end the chapter with the final it was Hagrid, you know, mm-hmm. because it's not immediately clear when you're first reading the Rubius scenes for those who don't know that he's Rubius Hagrid or remember that from the first chapter for the uh, Rubius yeah. Hagrid's keeper of right, keys that's and true. grounds at Hogwarts. That's true. So I think it was to set up this, uh, his, his like revelation that it was Hagrid. Okay. And that is the end of chapter 13. Was there anything unlucky in that chapter? Uh, it was well, unlucky. Was, <laughs> it was unlucky that um, Hagrid got caught <laughs> for something he didn't do. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. Oh, and Harry's uh, and the love, uh, the love poem in yeah. front of everyone. Right. Exactly. Which, I don't know, but that ended up in a lucky thing. So I don't know. It's unlucky that um, Ginny saw that Harry had the diary. Yeah. So that she could get it. Yep. Chapter 14, Cornelius Fudge. All right, so this chapter this chapter goes right into Harry explaining to Ron and Hermione um, what he learned through Tom Riddle's diary. Um, and he, he almost wishes that he didn't know how to work the diary because now he can't can't stop thinking about it. Um, and they start think and they start worrying about Hagrid and they don't really know how they're going to talk to him because they they both they all mutually believe that he wouldn't be the sort of person to do open the Chamber of Secrets and allow people to be killed, but at the same time, they kind of want to bring it up because they know that he's been expelled. So while they're thinking about that, um, there's a line in the books on page 251 that uh, uh, once again, we're looking at the Mandrakes. Uh, Pomona Sprout seeing that they are going to maturity, and at the moment that they start hopping into each other's pots will be the time when they're fully mature and ready to be ground into dust for the for the potion that's going <laughs> to save those who are petrified. So what I wanted to say is, is the fact that they are hopping into each other's pots a subtle uh, a subtle sex reference in here that she's just kind of putting in there? Because that seems to be the way that they, uh, you know, copulate, make more mandrakes. I don't think so necessarily. I mean, it depends if you see hopping into each other's pots as getting into each other's beds or moving in with each other. Because they are different things. Well, either way, um, there's going to be a, a little bit of yeah, sexual it's, it's showing that they are, they are they've re- they've reached an adult relationship, so they're either, they're committing to each other by moving into a, the same pot. Yeah, in some way, whether it's sex or whether it's just them kind of living together. And then Who they knows? get murdered. Oh, 
and they yeah. get murdered. So, so is uh, is Joe having them be murdered because they're they're moving in in together before marriage? Or <laughs> oh my god, no, don't make that. <laughs> no, no, <laughs> doubtful. Or, well, it just seems to be some check on their their maturity. Um, it's just saying the that they are now they're not teenagers anymore. They are adults, therefore, they have reached the right age to be right. as mature as they they are needed to be for this particular potion. Yeah. In, in any case, just the idea that they are hopping into each other's pots and, and you know, having parties and stuff. It, it, again, seems to imply that they have this this weird consciousness. Yes. So, <laughs> once again, if anyone would, would like to join MLF, uh, Mandrake <laughs> Liberation Front, I'm going to actually take this pretty seriously and, uh, Me too. and create it. <laughs> <laughs> Can you guys imagine that the Mandrake's getting married and then somebody up there at the altar is going, do you take blah, 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 and then <laughs> the Mandrake going, ah! and killing like half of the people in the room oh my god and, and guess what somebody <laughs> runs right through the front doors i object says pomona sprout with garden shears in her hands this sounds like a b movie waiting to happen or a bad <laughs> <fanfic>. <laughs> yes a bad fanfic oh <laughs> my goodness I'm, I'm telling you though it's uh there, there's some there's something weird there so sure noah okay <laughs> anyway um a little bit later on the chapter page 252 um we start learning that it's time to pick classes for next year. And Harry really do- doesn't know what he wants to do. He's, you know, thinking about just taking his wand and kind of poking randomly on the schedule and deciding he will take those classes. But he inevitably just goes along with what Ron's taking because if he's going to be taking something, he wants to make sure he's doing it with a friend. Um, but, I, you know, I was just thinking about it as I was reading. It seems like the students weren't getting a lot of uh, attention or guidance as far as it goes. So shouldn't Muggleborns get a little bit more guidance in choosing their courses throughout the throughout the years since they just don't know a lot of stuff. That's favoritism, no? Doesn't Hermione read like pamphlets? I'm, I swear there's something, there is information available but I don't think Harry and Ron are the particular I think that, that people that I, go seeking for it. I think that's in their fifth year, that there's pamphlets okay, yeah, that's when they, get, jobs, when they get career advice, yeah. Mm-hmm. Sure. Mm-hmm. But I think, it seems just know, limited. I'm sure there is actually that information out there that they just don't go and look at. I'm sure. Yeah. In any case, Hermione decides she's going to take all the classes, and as we know, that's going to give her a pretty hectic schedule, but I wonder if she knew something about time turners here, if she, she kind of knew that she was going to take all the classes, and there was a way to potentially do that. Probably. Or maybe she just thought that she would do kind of summer school and things, or working after hours, or we don't necessarily know about time turners yet, but she wants that she wants to take as many as possible. Right. That's true. And as we said, given the fact that she's not going to be taking many classes this year, right. she'll fail. She's actually going to be trying to catch up for lost time. Um, so then, um, so then we move to Quidditch. There's going to be a, Huffle, a game against Hufflepuff, and Harry's Harry's pretty excited. But just when he's about to go outside, he hears the disembodied voice again. I'm going to kill this time, rip, tear, and. And he's like, oh, no, not this again. <laughs> um, and, of course, it's when everybody is leaving leaving the school. So this is a potentially great moment for the Basilisks to come out, especially because no one's seeing it. But I just had a, just a general question about this Basilisk. We know it's being ordered by Ginny or, or Tom Riddle to, to act. But what is, it, what is the Basilisk's, basilisk's uh, motivation here? Is it just trying to eat or feed? Or does it really just want to kill by staring Muggleborns in the eyes and then it's just satisfied? I mean, does the snake have its own prejudice against Muggleborns, or is it just Tom Riddle telling it to do this? I think, I think, yes, I think it is Tom Riddle in Tom Riddle in snake form. Basically, it's the snake, the basilisk is taking on Tom Riddle's values and 
wanting to kill the Muggleborns. I mm-hmm. think so. Yeah. yeah. Basilisks themselves wouldn't necessarily have a, a pure blood attitude. They're just creatures that are fairly evil and would like to kill things. Right. But and it seems to have this weird desperation about it too, because it's been cooped up for so long. But it's not and it says rip or tear, but it doesn't rip or tear anything. It just kinda of stares at people. So Yeah, what, that's quite what strange kind of, that it wouldn't actually attack. Yeah, or you know, or eat the person. I, I don't know. It's got to be hungry. I know it's feeding on rats, getting rid of yeah. Hogwarts rat problem. But I mean, like, what is, is that, is that all it is? It's a desire to kill something and then it just kind of sneaks back, snakes back into its, uh, into its pipes. I was just thinking about something. What if, just for sake of argument, what if there was a Hufflepuff out there that was a parcel mouth and could talk to the basilisk? What would they make it do? I'm 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 trying to get at what you're what you're saying. Noah, is like is the basilisk? I can never say that. Really wanting to kill people, or is it just listening to Tom? Right. So well, I like what you said. I like the idea that it takes on Tom's you know values or wants. Yeah. Um, but then again, it is. It, it's isn't it the same snake that Salazar had? Um, no, I don't think it was like his pet snake. But I think he put it there. If you put it there, that it probably has the same. I mean, it's a parcel mouth. Like, it, so we know that snakes have a language, so they have some sort of brains. You know, they they have their own affinities. So maybe this is a snake that's been brainwashed by Tom Riddle slash Salazar Slytherin, and it has the same beliefs. Right, and I mean, and that's I'm wondering is that why it's a dangerous creature? I mean, how many basilisks have there been in the history of the Wizarding World? You know, were they all bad? What does bad? it say in Fantastic Beasts? Because I swear it's, it says that they, you know, they are dangerous yeah. creatures. Well, I, I mean, assume a giant snake is you pretty... You can't look at it without dying. <laughs> yeah. Hmm. And yet it, it the equivalent fails. of Medusa. Right. It turns you to stone if you look at it. Oh, right. That, I mean, oh yeah, that's true. It's got to be a complete uh, riff on Medusa. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But basilisks um, themselves are a, a, a medieval mythological creature. Um, so... They, that it's not Joe that's making this link between Medusa and the Basilisk. Right. Um, but right. yeah, you, you do have the idea of, you know, she has snake hair and if you look at her you turn to stone and so do the people who look at the Basilisk. Which, which is weird. It, it, it seems to be weird because does the snake does it have any control over that or is it just, it, that's just the way it is. Uh, so is it, it almost is. essentially evil in a way? If a Hufflepuff was a parcel mouth, would it be as... In- would it be a better, a happier snake? Maybe. It'd be fatter, probably. I'd like to remind you that Zachariah Smith is a Hufflepuff and he's not a nice character. I love Zachariah Smith. I have great plans You're for gonna- him. I cannot say anything more than that, but... <laughs> Did you dress up as him for Halloween? No, I just... I think he's so underrated. I think there's a... You know... But we can talk about him in, in book five. <laughs> Um, all right, so Harry hears the voice, but he's kind of unbothered about it. He just goes right up to his dormitory, gets his broom, and then goes outside, at which point the uh, the game is immediately canceled by Professor McGonagall. Before this, uh, Hermione didn't come to the game because she, she had this idea, and she needed to prove it, so she went up to the library, um, which actually was to her own peril. So this is teaching you more and more that we shouldn't be reading. Books are dangerous. Is the message that I'm getting. Books are dangerous. Books are dangerous. That's uh, this is a common thread throughout the Harry Potter books. You know the Christian, you know Christian right right about something when they got angry at Harry Potter. Whoa, um, let's not validate that, okay? <laughs> uh, 
I, I mean, that, I mean, that must be what they saw. You could support the claim with uh, the uh, oh god, what's the book called? Um, the book that tries to eat. Uh, what monsters what, book of right, monsters? Right. Yes, monsters there you go. There you go. Yeah, that yeah. book's dangerous. Books are out. Uh, dangerous. <laughs> books are dangerous. They'll consume you. Um, it's uh, it's just terrible. Yeah. So. Anyway, Laura Mallory is smiling at you right now. <laughs> Just saying. Right. Um, so McGonagall leads Harry and Ron to uh, a very unfortunate site. Hermione has been petrified alongside a Ravenclaw student, the previous student that um, Harry and Ron, you know, noted that they had passed when they were going towards uh, the Slytherin common room. And it's proven that it's Penelope Clearwater. So we do know that it was uh, Percy and Penelope down there in the dungeons before. Um, I wonder what they why. were doing. Hooking up. Giggity. <laughs> giggity, giggity. But uh, <laughs> that, that explains why George uh, tells Harry later in the common room why um, Percy's suddenly really upset because, well, at least George thinks it's because Penelope Clearwater was a prefect. And if she could get petrified, then it means that Percy must also be in danger. But as we know, that's actually not right what George was saying. He was clearly upset because, you know, Penelope's his, his girlfriend, petrified. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So... Yet another one of this, these amazing sections where it's just misdirection. We get we get one line and we think it's explained to us, but because it's uh, through Harry's limited consciousness and from random quotes, like it actually ends up being a different reason that he's upset. Mm-hmm. Which you know speaks to the power of her writing style. Anyway, brilliant. Bias. So right. So later on page two fifty nine. Now getting further in the chapter. Um, you know, Harry and Ron can't take it. Now that Hermione's in danger, they know they have to they have to figure this out and they, they decide to go to Hagrid. So they don the invisibility cloak once again and they sneak out to the Hogwarts halls and they find them much more crowded than they've ever have been before with prefects and teachers, um, you know, just because they're guarding against this uh, this monster. So Ron actually stubs his toe, but thankfully Snape sneezes at almost the same moment that Ron swore. Um, and I was wondering, Wait a second. Did Snape just help Harry and Ron? Did he know that they were there because he, he somehow knew that they had to go through? Or was it Dumbledore underneath Snape's nose putting some like pepper there <laughs> so that he could sneeze, controlling everything so that Ron wouldn't be hurt? Well, I don't. Maybe there's a sneezing spell. Maybe. I, I like the image of a disillusioned Dumbledore right under Snape's nose, though, with some pepper. <laughs> I think it was but, just a great coincidence. But yeah, yeah I mean, that, those, are, those are good theories. Mm-hmm. Great coincidence, but a potential like crazy theory that I'm just just throwing out. You never know. <laughs> um, so they they get to Hagrid's hut and they are met with a. Uh, he's got like a. He's got a not a bow and arrow. What, is, what does he have? <laughs> like a crossbow. A crossbow. Yeah. Yeah. Right. He's got a crossbow in his hands. And was, was Hagrid really going to meet the Minister of Magic with a crossbow <laughs> or whoever's coming to get him? That just seems like a bad idea. <laughs> he's afraid of being taken to Azkaban, though. That, I mean, that's true, but do you think it was going to work? And maybe maybe Dumbledore sensing this, that's why he went through the door first? Maybe. Uh, I don't know. I mean, we've seen, and maybe he was expecting something, you know, uh, more powerful. I don't know. I mean, maybe maybe some the monster was coming it from just, it. I think it just speaks to his wild man nature, so to say, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I know what you mean. He, uh, I think we we talked on an earlier podcast about how Hagrid often reflects uh, the 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 peasant. Is that right, or or just kind of the outside? Uh, the, you know, the, the 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 folk who believe in myth. Um, yeah, 
Mm-hmm. So he would he would go for that. He would go for the crossbow immediately. Yeah. But it also adds to our opinion of him. I mean, we we are going to see Hagrid to see if he's dangerous, and here he is facing us with a crossbow. So I think it, it just it adds to that moment of whether or not we trust Hagrid. Right. Oh, true. That's that's very true. I I agree with that. Um, so then Harry and Ron get inside and they talk to Hagrid briefly until, as I was saying, the Minister of Magic and Dumbledore come into the hut. And they basically, um, Dumbledore says he supports Hagrid with full confidence, but um, Fudge says, I'm Minister of Magic, I'm under a lot of pressure. Got to be seen to be doing something. Um, and that really just, that really got me. That just really spoke to the corruption of, you know, of Fudge and the Ministry of Magic because they just had to do something or anything to uh, quell the parents and, and the wizarding community. Um, and all the while, Dumbledore... Like British government. Sorry. <laughs> is it... I'm, would you would you compare that to British government? Yes. Unfortunately. Hmm. They they like right. to make statements and look like they're doing something, whether or not they've thought it through or not. I think that sounds like all politicians. Y- yeah, just yeah, I was just thinking about In that. General. Because, I, I mean, yeah, they... Saying that they had to do something and then acting on it is kind of like... I don't know. They're they're saying, okay, we're on top of it. We know what's going on. We know exactly what's going on, and we're going to deal with it. I'm not yeah, yeah. I think it speaks <laughs> definitely speaks to all government. I think I think the the British specifically though are very uh, skeptical. Or um, I don't want I don't want to stereotype, maybe. but yeah. And I feel like yeah. Americans are tend to be more. We tend to be more uh, stable with our values and ideas, so that if. Uh, if our if our governments do come out with great statements about good they're doing in the world, you know, it's kind of it's usually a happy, it's usually a happy thing that we're not we. I mean, I'm I'm sure there's skeptics among us, but we have a great patriotism in our country, as well that you know. Yeah, makes us not question as much sometimes. Right, right. Which is not necessarily a good thing, but anyway. <laughs> right. Um. So then. Um, as as they're speaking, Lucius Malfoy actually walks in, and he has a bit of a bit of a tiff with Hagrid. Um, but then uh, he he hands Dumbledore the order that he must leave uh, because he's been, uh, you know, the counselors have agreed that he's not fit to lead Hogwarts anymore. Even though Hagrid suggests pretty loudly that Malfoy has threatened all the uh, all the other pouncer, all the what's the word? Governors. 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 Right. Um, so he actually leaves pretty coolly. There's a fire in his eyes throughout the whole scene, but he doesn't act rashly, Dumbledore. In fact, there's this whole scene where it's back and forth between Fudge, Hagrid, and uh, and Malfoy. He doesn't uh, he doesn't say anything, and I think that's that silence is great. I was thinking, what was Dumbledore doing there? And he was just thinking. He was plotting and planning. Um, and then his next line, um, which is is his next line, is not even directed at them, but at Harry and Ron, because he seems to know that they're there. He just says. Um, I'll never be gone as long as there are those at Hogwarts who are loyal to me, and I will always offer help. Or, you know, he says something to that degree. Help will always be given at Hogwarts to those who ask for it. That's better. That's what he says. <laughs> Thank you, Terrence. You're welcome. <laughs> That's just what I needed. Um, but yeah, so he does that, and it, I he's thought everything through. He knows exactly what to do. Um, and my final question on this chapter is, how did he know that Harry and Ron were there. Can he actually see through the invisibility cloak, if some have suggested? Or has he had so much interaction with it that he can somehow sense that the cloak is there? Or maybe he maybe he just heard the gasps that Harry and Ron were making or saw the 
the tea on the table and just is very a very smart man and made the connection. But what do you guys? I think? definitely think he's observant. Uh, can mm-hmm. he see through the cloak? I don't know. But um, if anyone were to figure out how to see through it, it would be Dumbledore. But no, I think he's just observant. I think that you have to remember that the cloak is the Hallows cloak as well. Right, it can't be seen through. Yeah, I think that his 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 fascination with the Hallows, um, even whenever he was younger, and and him studying them for years and years, I think he's just sensing the cloak there, uh, the magic in the cloak there, and knowing that well, there's only really one invisibility cloak. Um, here at the school, and Harry must be under it, and I'm willing to bet that Ron is too. Yeah, I don't think he necessarily senses the magic or anything, but I think, like Kat said, he is incredibly observant. So, you know, maybe he spotted tracks, maybe he saw Harry leaving the castle earlier, or whatever. Um, Maybe, you know, the the fact that there are cups of tea, and the fact that Hagrid was... um, the way he was when he answered the door, or whatever, I think he he would be able to read the scene very easily, just like when Harry was seeing the um, the Mirror of Erised in book one, I think he's able to understand a, a, a situation whether he can see the people that are there or not. He would he would guess yeah. that Harry has gone to see his friend. Right. I mean, is it, is it possible that he uh, used legilimens on Hagrid, maybe unconsciously, or maybe a hominem revelio, wordlessly? Would a hominem revelio work on the on the cloak? Does it, it in, in uh, mm, Deathly Hollows? No. I feel like it does when those two Death Eaters come to. Uh, They're not wearing the cloak at that Lovegood point. House. They're not wearing the cloak. Oh, okay, okay, right. I and don't think uh, that Dumbledore would be able to see through the cloak when the cloak is meant to hide right people from death, and it blocks spells and all that other stuff. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think, but. Uh, yeah, one last thought on it is uh, Steve Vanderark on his episode when he when he came to be on our show. He talked about how some powerful magical objects have a certain connection with each other, and that maybe Dumbledore somehow was uh, could like tap into that power of magical objects connecting, because otherwise they're just too many coincidences. Um, that that's another theory. That's that's his. Well, theory I mean, he does have the Elder too. Wand, so right, he does have that's that. True. So maybe. Maybe he could sense some kind of connection or, or like, I don't know. Just I just feel as if he studied those objects so deeply that maybe he just had a sense about it. But uh, that about that about wraps up the chapter for me. Great. So let's move into our special feature, which is Pottermore in depth, of course. Um, we're going to start out with a little bit from chapter 12. Um, we're going to cover this, obviously, because these chapters were not open for the last episode. So the bit of new information we got was about Polyjuice Potion. It was in Chapter 12, Moment 2. And I thought that this, I mean, we touched on this briefly earlier, but the Pottermore information says, the effect of the potion is only temporary, and depending on how well it has been brewed, may last anything from between 10 minutes and 12 hours. You can change age, sex, and race by taking the Polyjuice Potion, but not species. The fact that Hermione is able to make a competent polyjuice potion at the age of 12 is testimony to her outstanding magical ability because it is a potion that many adult witches and wizards fear to attempt. So, I mean, like I said, I know we talked about this briefly before, but what do we think that this says about exactly how well Hermione made the potion since it only lasted, you know, an hour? You know, people... Well, clearly she made it She made it great, but she does kind of transfer into a different species, or at least in part, so... 
what do you, what do you think of that? It seems like even she if you're going to make the human potion, she stays it, human, but she uh, she kind of gets feline characteristics. So she doesn't actually change species; she kind of mutates within the human species, like like yeah. a bad transfiguration. Yeah, mm-hmm. I just think it's cool that it's even possible. Well, I don't. Uh, this is saying that it's not possible that she screwed it up; that that was a mistake. No, but the, even that it's possible with a cat hair that it, taking this potion allows you to mutate. But it's dangerous because it doesn't wear off, as we see by the fact that Hermione is in hospital for two months. Um, it's right. it's not like an, a general polyjuice potion if you use the wrong species. Mm-hmm. Um, but it does answer your question from last time, Noah, the, the idea of changing age, sex, and race, um, but never kind of personality. Um, so you can change your appearance, but you can't change um, anything else. Right. But it does, it um, begs the idea of um, kind of transgendered people would be able to change oh. their sex using this potion. Cheaper than surgery. Yeah. Well, that, that's the but idea. It seems like if you carry a flask like with you all the time. Yeah. Hmm. We'll, we'll see Barty Crouch Jr. do that, but it seems if you perpetually just drink it, you could just legitimately be another person um but you wouldn't be your own person you'd be the physical the physicality of an, another existing person right true exactly. clone. yeah just your appearance it doesn't it doesn't change your your thoughts or your heart or any of that mm-hmm. no. um what was i gonna say oh so there's a lot there's been a lot of talk about you know hermione's kind of inability to make a perfect potion and i feel like this kind of speaks to that again because you know later in book again in book six when harry's making you know the potions with the half-blood prince's book and hermione's just never come come out quite as well so there was a lot of talk about that on the forums what do you guys think you think she bites off more than what she can chew i mean because of the fact that she's 12 years old and trying to brew this polyjuice potion is very very advanced uh potion brewing potion potion making and um i think that it's just you know, as we were saying earlier, she's an overachiever. She wants to overachieve everything, and she wants to go for the hard stuff whenever it comes to, to school. I mean, she takes all these classes and things like that, but, you know... It highlights both her greatest strength and her greatest weakness. Yeah. Because her greatest strength is her intelligence and her kind of willingness to, to learn all of these things, but her greatest weakness is not having the natural skill to adapt them. Mm-hmm. We see that Lily Potter is a, a, a natural... Well, Lily Lily Evans, even at that point, is a, a natural potions mistress. She she can adapt things and is it potions or is it something else? Charms. Um, charms. She's she can invent her own charms. She can adapt them in ways that suit her own personality, and she can bring her own kind of magic to her skill. Whereas Hermione follows everything by the book and right. cannot use her own flair with these things. Exactly. But she's yeah. very good at making blue fires. It. it I, rem- I remember reading this on the forums. Somebody commented about how certain wizards have kind of specialties, something that they do really, really well. And they were asking about, do they think it kind of speaks about that person's personality as to, you know, what they yeah, kind of lean towards. Hermione's fires last time, yeah. Right, and like Lockhart with his memory charms and all of that. So, sure. yeah, I just think this is an area where she's kind of lacking, unfortunately. Poor Hermione. <laughs> Um, The next bit of information we get is in Chapter 14, Moment 1. This was really the only bit of new information in the last couple chapters, which I was disappointed about. 
Um, but it's about ghosts. It says, Muggles cannot come back as ghosts, and the wisest witches and wizards choose not to. It is those with unfinished business, whether in the form of fear, guilt, regrets, or overt attachment to the material world, who refuse to move on to the next dimension. And this, again, made me think about um, the nun witches at the death day party. And uh, did they perhaps have some regrets in their lifetime or, or maybe guilt? Maybe they hid the fact that they were witches from the congregation and that's why they kind of came back as, as ghosts instead. Or even fear of the afterlife. I mean, if they were nuns and they have this religious belief, you could be afraid that that was wrong throughout your lifetime and, the, and your death prophecy. would be the ultimate kind of decision moment. But isn't part of your quote-unquote job as a nun is to believe in the afterlife? You can believe in it, but that doesn't mean that you have unfinished business with the real world. No, I mean, you can you can believe in it, but have that kind of uncertainty within you. And then if that kind of builds up to the moment of fear that maybe you've devoted your entire life to something that might not necessarily be correct. Um, at the point of death, you may choose not to find out the answer to that and to stay around instead. But then I feel like they fail as nuns. Because I feel like they're <laughs> supposed to have like this, you know, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Like, Or ultimately, you could say that their unfinished business would be that they've devoted their entire life to, you know, their convent, to their, um, to their practice of kind of devotion in that way. So by becoming ghosts and having this unfinished business they could be devoting their afterlife to the same practice. So it's the ultimate devotion by spending both both kind of time spans of life. Wow, okay, so they still they still carry out their nunish duties as ghosts, you're saying. Or <laughs> yeah, well, well is it a, is is it a secret continual duty or are they staying on earth because they uh because all throughout their life they they wanted that other life. They felt like they they were missing out on right. not being committed all of the above, perhaps. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> um, another paragraph in the ghosts section said, Ghosts can pass through solid objects without causing damage to themselves or the material, but create disturbances in water, fire, and air. The temperature drops in the immediate vicinity of a ghost, an effect, an effect intensified if many congregate, congregate in the same place. My goodness. Their appearance can also turn flames blue. Okay. Should part or all of the ghosts pass through a living creature, the latter will experience a freezing sensation as though they have been plunged into ice-cold water. So I actually just caught that. So was Myrtle in the bathroom? Was she in that toilet? Because the flames under the polyjuice are blue. I'm just saying. <laughs> but my real question was, um, it made me think of the mandrake draught and Nick. So do you think that perhaps they have like a tub full of mandrake draught and they kind of like float Nick through it because he can affect the liquid but the liquid can't affect him so I'm just thinking about how many mandrakes were killed to make that bath <laughs> <laughs> no but really what do you, what do you but in all seriousness yeah that that seems right because if he can uh, if they can affect water in a way it seems like water has a there's some sort of crossover between ghost and real world dimensions so that would be the way it, it happens you know mm-hmm or, or maybe a watery mist is, is spritzed onto him again. I can see no, that. but that's but see that's the liquid affecting Nick. I think I think he'd have to be floated through it somehow. Right. Oh, he has to be 
go through it so that it can Right, uh, he has to affect the liquid, not the other way around. Oh, oh, I see what you're saying. They can create disturbances in water, fire, and air. Right. Where does it say that the water can't affect? Um, I'm assuming that it can't. (laughs) How's that? (laughs) I think that they're kind of... They can go through solid objects, fine, nothing happens. But anything with a bit more kind of viscosity um, would kind of bend around them, I guess is what I'm thinking. Would, so that yeah. whether whether water is put on him or whether he goes through water, it will have the same effect. I guess I was thinking kind of like the book with Myrtle. Like if you substitute the book for water and you throw water at her, it's going to fly right. But the book is a solid object, whereas water is liquid. But it's still solid. But it's liquid. Are ghost gases? Maybe, maybe, uh, yeah. I mean, I'm thinking maybe it has, they could administer it as some kind of a mist. Yeah. And that way, whenever they float through, they affect the mist, I think. And by nature, by virtue, get affected. It's like right. um, osmosis. Yeah. Yeah. Or ghostmosis. <laughs> <laughs> ghostmosis. <laughs> Sorry. Well, I mean, that that's nice. it. Unfortunately, there wasn't too much new info in the Pottermore stuff, but what we did get was interesting, so. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah, certainly. All right. So now moving on to the podcast question of the week, guys. Go for it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so we talked a lot about the diary, Horcrux, um, and how it functions. And we didn't really talk about this, but it's a lot like a pensieve, right? Um, you know, you're able to go in and see uh, past memories. Um, on so many levels, the diary is, is seems very different from other Horcruxes that Voldemort has created when we think about them throughout the series um, in that it can actually take Ginny's soul into it at a certain point and then Re- rebuild itself in a way or become a new soul um, and it's been it's been proffered by people on the host that that was because uh, you know Voldemort was way more connected to the diary or because it was his first Horcrux there was more of him in it to begin with so our question to everybody is um, how is the diary Horcrux different from the other Horcruxes if it is at all was it, is it just because it had was made of, in different circumstances or is it because it had more of Voldemort's soul in it to begin with or um, maybe for another reason. Just basically, so our question is, do you think the Diary Horcrux is different from the other Horcruxes fundamentally or no? And uh, we'll read some of your responses on the next episode of Alohomora. Well, brilliant. Thank you very much, Terence, for joining us. You were a great guest. I hope you enjoyed it. Oh, thanks a lot. It was a lot of fun, guys. Definitely a uh, uh, new kind of experience for me. And just again, thank you so much. Had a lot of, a lot of fun. Good. Yeah, we're glad you were here. And if anyone listening wants to be on the show, much like Terrence, you can, uh, there's several ways you can do that. The first is you can email a clip to alohomorapodcast at gmail.com. It should be of you, you know, picking apart the book just like we do, because if we have you on the show, we need to know that you can analyze, of course. And also, you need to make sure that you have appropriate audio and recording equipment, you know, to send in your clip. And the other way is by submitting content on the Alohomora website. As you've noticed, we read emails from there, we comment, we have conversations. So if you're on there all the time and you're commenting, we're going to notice you and we'll probably invite you on the show. And you can also follow us on Twitter at AlohomoraMN. We love to interact with fans on Twitter and just uh, read your immediate insights from the show. Um, Yeah, it's just a great forum to do it. You can also find us on Facebook Facebook.com slash open the Dumbledore. 
And um, we want friends, not followers. I'm just saying. We're right. the opposite of Voldemort. <laughs> and we can uh, we can immediately update you when a new show is released. Um, we do like followers follow on Twitter as well. Well, that's <laughs> that's true. We do. We want friends and followers. Right. <laughs> <laughs> We're not very picky. <laughs> And you can also um, you can also I don't know follow or share with us on Tumblr, mnalohamora.tumblr.com. You can leave us voicemail messages at two zero six go albus or two zero six four six two five two eight seven. You know we really like to hear what you guys say directly through your voicemails, and we'll play them on the show sometimes. Um, we also have our personal website alohamora.mugglenet.com. You can find the forums there. You can um, find the submit form if you want to send us quibbles and artwork. And of course, our email, alohamorapodcast at gmail.com. For all your all of your messages, if you have any queries about the show, we're happy to get back to you. And we also have our fantastic app, which is available in the US for iPhone and Android, but in the UK it's only for iPhone, I'm afraid. And that's a dollar ninety nine or ninety nine pence. And there are transcripts, bloopers, alternate endings, host vlogs, and much, much more on the app, so make sure you check it out. And don't forget, you can also sus- subscribe to us on iTunes and leave us a review there because that's where we get a, a big bulk of our uh, listeners. And it's great. If you like the show, rate and review us. And we love to read, get your feedback. And just one more time, we want to remind you that we are now offering low bandwidth versions of the show. Uh, they're exclusively on our archives at alohomora.mugglenet.com. And they start with episode 10, which is our first Chamber of Secrets episode. They are still currently not available on iTunes. They may be in the future. We'll let you know if that changes. But head over to the website to download download them directly to your computer. Okay. I do believe now, after a long episode, that's the end of the show. I'm Noah Freed. I'm Rosie Morris. And I'm Kat Miller. Thank you for listening to episode 16 of Alohomora. Open the Dumbledore. Oh, yeah. probably sings them love songs or something okay she loves those mandrakes i'm sure she does (laughs) (laughs) oh she loves them all right (laughs) anyway i I actually brought i bring mandrakes up in my chapter so we can talk about that a little later or not episodes at least 15 to 20 times i'm recording again now great do you want to okay. do another sync thing? Yeah, let's do another sync. Good idea. Um, one. Um, same as before. Go ahead, Noah. Clap on four. Mm-hmm. Okay. One, two, three. Oh, that was pretty good. Okay. I, think that's, I think that's probably good. Okay. Sorry, editors. Sorry about, <laughs> Sorry about that, guys. So, so Rosie, do you want to respond to the, the <clears throat> unethical... Uh, no, I was I was yelling my head off over here, but you guys couldn't hear me. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> Be just as passionate. I was singing in my head. I'm sure you were. As you can imagine. Um, 238? Mm-hmm. This is the longest episode ever.
It will be edited yeah, down. People like it. I know. <laughs> people like it. It's good. It's a good show. Maybe Your we should turns. only do one chapter. They're, they're kind of more packed than they used to be. Oh, if we do that, then I have to restructure everything. We have to do two. That's true. Fair enough. <laughs> well, what if we do? What if we no. do some episodes with just one chapter no. in the future? Oh, for bigger future, for, for bigger books, yeah. I definitely think... Because I think we found that last week as well. Like, we, we skipped so much of the chapters last week, but it was already a two-hour episode at the end. Right. We could tell, like, and we'll have so many more episodes. Okay, here it is.